Well, welcome, welcome, Jonathan, to London Seminary. And a yeah. very good morning to you. We're conscious this is the crack of dawn for you. So, so if, if you're constantly drinking cups of strong coffee through the lecture, we really sympathise with you. There it is. <laughs> OK, so, so we're, we're greatly anticipating this, this week of special lectures uh, with you. Uh, Jonathan, I know that you are the editorial director of Nine Marks. I know that you have written many books, including Political Church and uh, How the Nations Rage. Uh, and, 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 and your passion is church government. That sounds a strange thing to say, doesn't it? I mean, who gets passionate about church government? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? How did, how did you get so enthusiastic about congregationalism? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is peculiar, isn't it? Um, uh, well, I mean, I, I think I was always interested in political science, and so I was, uh, you know, just as a, you know, a kid in my parents' house growing up, I, I was, I was interested in political things and so forth and ended up um, doing my first degree, my undergraduate degree in political science and English, but mainly political science. And then I, uh, I moved to London and did a, did a master's of political theory at, at London School of Economics and, and lived next to a, uh, Butler's Wharf lives next to Tower Bridge. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. Great. This is my Lego Tower Bridge. Right. There's there's an X-wing fighter attacking it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I lived next to Tower Bridge for that year. Anyway, I moved back to DC, um, or not moved to DC, and um, worked as a managing editor of an international economics magazine. Um, and then felt actually it was then I think I became a Christian. Uh, this is the late nineties, 96 to 2000, somewhere in there. It's a, um, through the, the ministry of Capitol Hill Baptist church and felt called, it was planning on doing a PhD in political theory, but then felt called to minister, became a Christian, became felt called a ministry. So went to Southern seminary to do my MDiv and, um, and uh, then began working for nine marks, but also began a PhD. And what the PhD ended up doing was was convert uh, combining my theology and my whole world of political theory up to that point. So it ended up being an exercise in political the theology, and that was at the University of Wales. And um, along the way, there's this kind of world of theology and politics. My interest to your question, Bill my interest in church government was sort of an inevitable outcome of all of that because it's 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 the convergence of the two things right as well as well as what we're going to be talking about to some extent in this in the next few days which is what, what is the church relative to the landscape of the nations how, how does it fit onto that landscape and so yeah all of these things sort of converged and came together in in my interest in the church and church government and so forth Okay. Okay. That's terrific. Well, we're very much looking forward to these lectures. We're just so sorry that you can't be with us in person because we, yeah, we were looking forward to all those personal interactions, but we hope that, um, uh, that you know, uh, 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 the students here are used to a fairly interactive lecture style. So if you want to involve them in, uh, you know, questions, discussion, uh, we, we'll also enjoy that. I'll, ju I'll just pray for you. And then, uh, and then I won't steal any more of your time. I'll just let you, uh, let you crack on. That's great. Thank <laughs> you.
Uh, gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, the, uh, for saving us and for bringing us into fellowship with your Son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you, gracious God, for making us members of your family, uh, the Christian Church. We thank you for the love and the unity that we enjoy uh, within this new family. Uh, we thank you, gracious God, that you are gathering together your people out of all uh, uh, languages and tribes and nations. And gracious God, we uh, thank you for the opportunity now we have to consider this glorious theme of the church and particularly how the church relates to the wider world and the influence of the church within the wider world and the witness which we give to the wider world. We thank you for Jonathan. We thank you for his testimony of salvation and for the interest that you put upon his heart, both from the aspect of his spiritual interest in the church and also his interest in political science. We do pray for your blessing upon him now. We're conscious this is still the very early morning. We pray that you would fill him with your spirit. We pray that you would grant him grace and wisdom as he speaks to us and as we interact together in our discussions. And we do pray for your blessing on this time, that it might not only be informative, but also edifying and helpful and building us up and equipping us better for our future ministry. So we pray for your help and enablement and that Christ will be honoured in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to turn this camera around now, Jonathan, so you can see the, those students who are here in person. So there's some students who are here online, on Zoom, and then there's some in the room. And you can now see the ones who are in the room. So, so if you want that to make that a bigger screen or whatever, then, uh, you know, feel free. And then you'll actually feel as if you're speaking to, to real people. Yeah. 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 Looks like a pleasant room to be in. Wish I could be there with you. Regret not being there, but it didn't seem like a two-week quarantine. Just to wait around to begin the class together with a third week seemed like a, a good thing to do to my family and otherwise. So thank you for being here in this Zoom format. What I'd like you guys all to do is write in an email to me, unless somebody can think of a better way of doing this. I don't know, maybe a Somebody wanted to put together a Google Doc, I, for, I guess, but all I can think of is an email to me saying kind of the two or three questions you were hoping to get answered in this course this week. Um, the, the, the title, Church in the World, is a little, you know, it's not Doctrine of the Church. It's not, you know, political theology. It's, it's something a little broader, a little vaguer than that. And I have a set of lectures that I plan on giving um, to you brothers. Uh, but <clears throat> because this is a, a slightly wet cement idea, we can, we can shape it as we go to some extent. And that's why I'm not going to give you a full outline just yet of, of the courses or the, the lectures I intend to give. Cause I also want to hear from you what you think would be helpful. Uh, Jonathan, I want to make sure we, we, we get to justice. I want to make sure we get to the mission of the church. I want to make sure we get to religious freedom. And is that really a biblical idea? I, I really want to make sure we get to whatever it is. So if you could, I don't want a paragraph. Uh, I don't want long explanations. So it'll take too long to read. There's too many of you. So it's just like a, a sentence and a, a question, two or three questions. 
what about this? And if you want to email me that this morning at some point on one of our breaks, I can look through that. Or even this evening, I can look through that. My email, just send it to uh, Jonathan at ninemarks.org. Jonathan, J-O, Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-N. Sometimes people put an extra H in there. I'm not sure why. <laughs> J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, not O-N, A-N. Um, at nine marks, number nine, M-A-R-K-S dot org. Send it there. Um, yeah. Now, when I'm on a separate screen, you guys can still see me, right? Yes. No, don't. Yes. All right. Thank you. Because like on, on, on FaceTime, if you go to a separate screen, people can't. So I'm just going to have my, my lecture notes. I'm primarily looking at my lecture notes here. Um, uh, I'm sure there's fancier two screen ways of doing all of this. I'm a bit of an amateur or as the teenage kids say, a boomer, <laughs> bit of a boomer, which is not a generational designation, mind you. I've discovered from my 15-year-old daughter. Um, so this first lecture, see, we, we're supposed to go to... Uh, what time are we supposed to? We're supposed to go to 11, 11, 10? 11. 11. So that's 20 minutes from now, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, let's, let's. We'll start this lecture and then I'll, I'll just continue it in the next one. Um, maybe stop for a, a few minutes towards the end just to see if there's any, any questions. Um, I think what's animated a lot of my writing in this, 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 this intersection between faith and politics is, is the uh, assumption or the, the sense that many Christians don't know how to think about politics and government and church biblically. Instead, we follow enlightenment categories of dividing politics and religion. Um, in fact, let me uh, give you a, a number of problems of what I think is is missing. Some some you might say background problems in how we think about th background theological problems and how we think about this general <clears throat> area. And then I'll give you a few foreground pastoral problems all right uh in this 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 whole area um i'm going to spend the, the most time just on this this first one and uh that that is we we tend to follow enlightenment categories of dividing politics and religion and i was mindful of the fact just even yesterday looking over my notes how how much of what i've written is is aimed at an american audience and our conceptions of separation of church and state and not um, within an, a, 
kind of an Anglican worldview, which in my experience, even Baptists to some extent in England inhabit, um, certainly not Anglican convictions, uh, other than our, our friend Matt, um, who's doing work on the inside, he says, but, 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 but in general, you, know, you guys live in a, in a different kind of context in how we think about these things than I live in. And to the extent that you feel like, uh, he's speaking to America, just, just bear with me. I, I hope we get to biblical principles that, um, and even some application points that you'll, you'll, you'll sympathize with. But I, problem number one, you know, we, we tend to divide politics and religion in a enlightenment driven way and less in a biblical way. And in, in my own experience, I think we let these enlightenment or in my experience, you know, my case, American, or we could say Western democratic or liberal, classical liberal presuppositions determine we re- way we read the Bible instead of letting the Bible govern how we think about these topics of, of politics and religion. And it's almost as if we have this big pot of stew that's been simmering for centuries, and it's got all of our favorite phrases in it. You know, render to Caesar. What is Caesar's? You know, you got a biblical phrase like that, or be subject to governing authorities, Paul, Romans 13. But, but that, for me as an American, is right in there in the same pot of stew as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Or, you, you know, you could, that's Jefferson's version, you could come up with a Lockean version. Um, no law respecting an establishment of religion in my own constitution, or in God we trust, or of the people, for the people, by the people. And these lines of Bible and my own political tradition are cooking together, simmering together. And it's always, it's not always easy to know, okay, are my convictions coming from my political tradition and history? Or are my convictions coming from the Bible? And I, I trust you guys have your own same of set of uh, phrases and ideas and, you know, political convictions that you would arise from your party, that would arise from your civic traditions and so forth, that to some extent flavor how you read the Bible. And uh, we, to some extent, we need to extricate those so we can look at both independently it's not to say you're you're to jettison get rid of all of your your political convictions through say british history and so forth but but you you are you do need to know okay this is bible this is not um you know so for instance here here, here's an example of what i'm talking about Uh, i I think i think a favorite phrase i think a favorite biblical phrase for for christians living in democracies various democracies for for a couple hundred years is is render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, right? And we tend to read that verse as if you, you know, picture a, a, a whiteboard and I have two circles on the whiteboard. And in one circle, I have Caesar's things. And in the other circle, I have God's things, right? So in one circle, I have Caesar's things, which is politics and elections and laws and so forth. And then in the other circle, God's things, I have my religion, I have my church and evangelism and conversion and worship and all of those things. And 
that's 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 the religious stuff. So I got my my political stuff and I got my religious stuff. And this view of the separation of religion and in politics then impacts our view of what a church is. It impacts Christian discipleship, our life together, and how we engage in the public square. In the church, you get pastors saying, I don't do politics, right? And, and that, that leads to a strong sense of separation between these two domains. Meanwhile, on the political side, you have an adamancy of like, don't you bring your religion, don't bring your Christianity into the public square. So, for instance, over on my side of the pond, you have Senator Dianne Feinstein challenging a Roman Catholic woman who had been nominated for a circuit court judgeship. Uh, she said to her, this, this, uh, this was actually Amy Coney Barrett back before she was pushed up to the Supreme Court. Senator Feinstein says to her, your dogma lives loudly within you. Referring to the fact that the uh, Amy Coney Barrett is a strong Roman Catholic. And you could say that Senator Feinstein had a really vigorous separation of religion and politics, which she would conflate with a separation of church and state. And she was just trying to keep these things separate. But the question that any of us should ask Senator Feinstein, of course, is does your dogma not live loudly with you? Uh, a, a while back, I was teaching a class of Christian college students doing internships here in Washington, D.C., and I was talking about some of these things, and one student raised his hand and said, okay, so Jonathan, are you saying we have a right to impose our morality through law? You know, maybe he had read everyone from C.S. Lewis to Martin Lloyd-Jones arguing that Christians should be leery of morals legislation. And I replied, I said, okay, well, name for me one law that doesn't impose someone's morality. Just one. You know, what do you mean morals legislation? Uh, the class paused and thought, and eventually they kind of chuckled, right? That there's no such thing as a law that doesn't impose morality. Never mind Lewis, never mind Lloyd Jones, and so many others, right? Every law depends upon a moral evaluation. Every law imposes a moral evaluation. Uh, in fact, let me, let, me, let me put it a little bit more dramatically for you guys. I would say that a nation's public square is nothing less than a battleground of gods. It is where a citizenry wages war on behalf of their gods. So behind <clears throat> every parliamentary vote, behind every court decision, behind every protester's picket line or social media campaign, um, pr government program is someone's basic worldview of how things ought to be, a basic vision of justice. And behind that worldview and vision of justice is a God. And this is true whether the matter up for debate is abortion or same-sex marriage or tax policy or immigration law or funding for public parks. Uh, now, make no mistake, I'm not saying that we should bring our God or gods into the public square. I'm saying we cannot help it. It is inevitable. You, ju you, just, you just can't not do it. Uh, 
And just as we fail to recognize, I think, too often the inescapably religious nature of the public square as if it were somehow neutral between different religions, which it is not. At most, it's an overlap of different religions. So we also fail to recognize the political nature of the church, which is something I'm going to talk about, especially when we come back in a few minutes. Um, the church is invariably political all the way down and all the way through. So I, I moved to Washington, D.C. at age 23 because I loved the city and, and what it represented. I was interested in politics. And as I said to you earlier, I ended up editing this international economics magazine. And it was during that time that my approach to politics dramatically shifted. Why? Well, it's because I became a Christian and joined a church. Now, am I saying that, okay, I'm a white evangelical, that makes me a Republican? Well, no. Uh, it's because when you say Jesus is Lord and join a church, you have a new set of loyalties that surpass all other loyalties, whether loyalties of family, party, or nation. To say Jesus is Lord is a profoundly political act, Right. In fact, uh, my, my, junior, my junior year of college, I did a study abroad in, in London. First semester was in London. Then I went to Brussels. First semester there in London, I uh, attended, I was, I, I was doing an internship in the House of Commons for a conservative member of parliament named Hugh Dykes. And uh, I, don't, I don't think he's in parliament anymore, last I heard. And I remember one Sunday, I grew up in church. And I, again, I don't think I was a Christian. I was a nominal Christian, I, but uh you know, I always went to church, uh, and so I attended uh, um, St. Helens, and um, <clears throat> I remember my first Sunday there, I was speaking to this sweet old lady next to me in, in, in the pews there at St. Helens, and uh, she said, oh, what are you doing in London? Oh, that's great you're here, and I'm like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing an internship in the House of Commons, and she said, uh, she said oh, who, who, who are you working for? And I said, well, Hugh Dykes. And she said, isn't he a conservative? And I said, yes. She said, and you're a Christian? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> At that point, you know, I, I lived my entire life in, in the U.S. And, and the, conserv the Christians I knew were all Republicans. And I, I, I didn't have an understand of, understanding of British and, and, and European experiences that sometimes Christians move leftward right? For various economic reasons and so forth. And so that shattered my, 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 um, my paradigm at that point. But we, we tend to, don't we? We tend to view Christianity through certain ideological and certain partisan lenses. And, and, and what I'm saying is, no, 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 no. Friends, your politics starts with the fact the moment you say, as the Old Testament Jew would have said, Yahweh is king. We, we as Christians would say Jesus is Lord. So let's, let's, let's go back to that, that favorite verse of Christians and democracies, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Okay, how do we read that? How do we not let context to some extent influence and just trying to read it on its own terms? Do we genuinely have two circles, Caesar's things, God's things, you know, political things, worship things. Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, he, he's certainly separating, separating the, the, 
the Israelite king as as a legitimate, or I'm sorry, the the, the king rather, the, 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 at this point, the emperor Caesar as a legitimate authority over and against the people of God. So there is a kind of institutional separation of church and state. I I would argue in that moment. I I don't care if Caesar doesn't represent your religion, you are still to submit to him, right? Jesus is saying. Um, Theonomy is is harder to get to at at this moment, right, from from Jesus' perspective. But at the same time, there's more going on. What does Jesus do? He, He asks for a coin, and he says, okay, whose image is on it? I say Caesar's. But as Don Carson observed, every member of his Jewish audience would have known whose image is Caesar. Well, he's in God's, of course. In other words, what Jesus is offering us is not two separate circles. He's offering us one big circle, God's things. And inside of that is a smaller circle, Caesar's things. So sure enough, a few chapters later, Jesus goes on to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? Or as he says to Pilate in John's gospel, you would have no authority were it not given to you from from above. But when we let our civic traditions and assumptions determine how we read Scripture, instead of letting Scripture determine our view of politics and our traditions, we miss this, right? So what I'm saying is we, 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 we let these point one, problem one is we, we let our context determine our reading of the Bible, which in many cases is an enlightenment context, which I think still governs us, especially in politics, and instead of letting the Bible into this. So we're going to try to rethink what does it mean for the church to be political? What does it mean for the state or the public square to be religious. A few other uh, theological background problems. Um, I'm going to actually, I'm going to stop there because we have three minutes left and see if there's questions. And I'll just resume this when we, when we return. Any questions from what I've said so far? I have a question, but uh, I'm writing this down in the email and I sent you. <laughs> okay. Any questions of pertinence to everything, anything I've said so far? I spoke to a, a David Constable from in the seminary. Okay. Christian businessman at a, a lunch in the city. And he's surprised that Christians were meeting in the day talking about Christian things. And he said that in the States, we do not mention our religion in business during the day. And I was very surprised. If you're a Christian, surely you would say something. But it seems to be kept very much out of that space. Well, it's it's certainly different. People do. Christians do. Uh, I assume others do, but yeah, no, it, it, it's, uh, there's no, there's no law against it, but there is a, an increasingly so a unwritten rule that, yeah, that's sort of impolite to talk about. You, you wouldn't do that. Is that not the case, say in London? No, I always gave an account 
Oh, I have two. It's easy just to start talking about your Christianity. Yeah. Well, you, you pick your moments. I sure. do you pick your moments. And I, if I went on a business trip, I always made it clear that people knew I was a Christian. Yeah. Because you compromise yourself, otherwise they want to take you to some dodgy nightclub. Yeah. Uh, so you, you play along for a while, and suddenly you have to make a decision. Yeah. Right. Jump. Yeah. Now I'm not I'm not saying to you my Christian friends don't talk about it. They like you. They they look for their moments to ins- make sure it's clear and to even share the gospel. So ab- absolutely Christians work to, but you know all all the social forces are arrayed against it at the moment. And like you, uh, I was at St Helens, and they do great work there. So you can bring people to that church during the week, and there's other meetings going on. Yeah, it's wonderful. Wherever going out, so using that opportunity. Right. Uh, ready to go each one of us. Let, let, me, let me pray. Father, thank you for your love. <clears throat> Give us the ability to think well now, especially according to your truths. Uh, give us understanding. Give us uh, mental diligence, we pray. Help us because we are weak creatures of the flesh. In Christ's name, amen. I was going through some background problems, and the first one is I. Uh, I said, I don't think we know how to think about politics and government and church biblically. And so we, we let culture in some ways, our Western culture, determine how we do it. Uh, another, here's a, here's a second problem. We, we don't know how to read the Bible institutionally. We don't know how to read the Bible institutionally. I think if you ask any thoughtful Christian academic or not how to read the Bible politically, You'll hear right emphases on paying attention to a book's genre and the original context and attending the continuities and discontinuities between the Testaments, especially the way in which a Christian reading of the Old Testament recognizes Christ's fulfillment of all things. I think that's pretty common uh, in in our circles to talk about. We, We recognize those hermeneutical principles. That's good. That's essential. Yet what's also, what's missing too often is any sense of how to read the Bible institutionally? Let me let me give an illustration of what I mean. Suppose I leave a list of evening to-dos. I write some to-dos down for myself and my wife, and it's there. I put it on my desk at work, and then my assistant walks in. He picks up that list of evening to-dos for my, my wife and myself, and he thinks it's for him. He reads through the list. He thinks to himself, now, wh- why am I returning a pair of oven mitts to Bed Bath & Beyond? You know, it's an American store. Okay, the confusion is arising in him because my wife and I inhabit one institutional structure and my assistant and I inhabit another institutional structure in our relationships. And interpreting that to-do list means minding which institutional structure we're inside of. Okay, that's the illustration. I think most people today recognize that the rules binding Old Testament Israel cannot transfer directly to the New Covenant Church. We get that. Yet we also need to ask which to-do list the Bible gives to the governments of the nations. Okay, what what to-do list does the church have what to-do list do the government of the nations have? What to-do list does the family have? Um, one of you, a, a couple of you, faithfully emailed me those 
questions as I ask. Thank, thank you very much, guys. Um, and again, please feel free to send those questions. Manuel asked, for instance, is it biblical? Is Kuiper's theory of sphere sovereignty a, a biblical idea? And and what Manuel's question is getting at there is what's the to-do list for the church? What's the to-do list for the state? What's the to-do list for the nation uh, the nation or for the family? These different spheres. What what jurisdictions? has God given? And again, I don't think we Christians today do a very good job of knowing how to read the Bible in that way. And I think it's crucial that we learn how to do that, right? Um, for instance, as you, as you read through the Old Testament, what you'll see is that typically Israel is going to be invited both for injustice and idolatry. Whereas more often the nations are simply indicted for injustice, right? That's that's just that's an interesting side by side, uh, and I think that's significant in covenantal terms because the the, the the British government and the U.S. government and the and the government of Kenya stand actually closer in relationship to ship to the Egypt and to Rome than they do to ancient Israel and the church or or the church. So, so we, we need to know, okay, who is God authorized to do what? What, what to-do lists has he given? Um, and we, so we need to know how to read the Bible institutionally. We'll be talking about, about that in a couple of lectures. By the same token, here's the background problem number three. We don't know how to read the Bible covenantally. Background theological problem number three, we don't know how to read the Bible covenantally. Um, I, I think too quickly Christians throughout history have looked for guidance for our government and the laws and so forth uh, in both the commandments of the old covenant and the new. Even more, we've, so we've, we've taken stuff that applies to Israel, we, we apply it too quickly to us. Um, the furthermore, I'd say we fail to pay attention, give adequate attention to Noahic covenant, which I'm going to eventually argue is the covenant explicitly given, not to God's special people, but to give to humanity in general, okay? Uh, background theological problem number four, we, we too quickly, or rather we don't recognize the central role of justice in our thinking. And nor do we know how to distinguish between the justice that's required of the state and the justice that's required of the church. And what is justice and how do each of these respective institutions attend to it, right? And what, what I'm going to argue is that God does authorize governments to protect the God imaging, God imagers through retribution. He, he grants them the ability to establish a basic form of justice that we can call Noahic justice. Through covenant with Noah, governments are given a, the <clears throat> authority to use force, a legitimate authority to use force in pursuit of justice, but it is not a maximalist or perfectionist form of justice, the kind that God does require of the old covenant Israel and new covenant church. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It is a narrowly defined preservative or protectionist form of justice, whereas, whereas the church in its life together it is interested in a maximalist and perfectionist concept of justice. Okay, we're going to have to think these things through together, but 
but I, I think, I mean, just stop and ask yourself, how many, how many sermons have you heard over the years on the idea of justice? I, I mean, I, I can say personally, I'm not many, any, right? And so these days we're all besotted with concepts of social justice, which often feels more ideological than it does biblical, but we don't really know how to grapple with this idea of social justice. Well, let's start by defining justice from the Bible and what the politician's responsibility is and the voter's responsibility on the one hand. On the other hand, the pastor's responsibility. Different things. Background theological problem number five, weakness in the way we think about these things, I would say is we just lack an ecclesiology. And I don't know about I, I, I confess I don't know how much you know ecclesiology instruction you guys are receiving at my own seminary. Doctrine of the church is not a required course. You get a little bit of it in systematic three. You get a little bit of it along the way in, in, in Baptist history, but most guys graduate from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and if you attend them, it's the same as Southwestern Baptist Theological, Southeastern Theological Baptist Theological Seminary. It's the same at Trinity Divinity School, Gordon-Conwell, you name your U.S. seminary, and uh, you're not going to get that much, much instruction on, on the church. I think actually the Presbyterians do a little bit better. Um, so you got these guys graduating as pastors, and they've never taken a full course on ecclesiology. Same time, if we want to talk about the world of political theory, political philosophy, political theology, most of them don't know ecclesiology. I mean, how... How well, certainly among the seculars, everybody from, say, John Locke to John Rawls, well, they don't have an ecclesiology, but even if you go to your Christian political philosophers, they don't have much, of, they, they don't know what the power of the keys are. So now they're trying to talk about things like the separation of church and state. Well, they don't even know what the church is. So if, if you go to the, the, the Christian folks writing about politics or political philosophy, they don't have a doctrine of the church, so... You can't expect much from them. And, and, and sadly, too often, the, the same is true then of, of, of pastors. They, they don't have a vigorous ecclesiology. So how can we think about the separation of church and state if we don't have that? How can we think about the mission of the church? What's, what's the church responsible to do? Is it responsible to transform culture, redeem the city? Uh, is it your responsibility to tell members of your church how to vote? Uh, things like that. What what kinds of things should you as a congregation get involved in politically? Should you tell people to march? Should you tell them to protest? Should you tell what, what are your responsibilities? Well, unless you have a strong ecclesiology, you're going to have a tough time answering those questions. And so, what I will say is, over these lectures in the, this week, I'm going to spend the bulk of our time building up an ecclesiology. Okay, that we're going to spend the most of the time there, but then we'll examine how that flows out into public engagement. But guys, I'm, I'm convinced that you have to have a vigorous ecclesiology so that the bulk of the lectures are going to be devoted to that. Okay, so those are some of the background theological uh, challenges. Let, let me offer a few, five or six, um, six uh, pastoral challenges, foreground, you feel them as you're talking to people, pastoral challenges. And um, um, let me just gonna run through these really fast, and then we get to the main part of the lecture, which is just kind of an introduction to the, the church's political. Um, foreground pastoral challenge number one, how, how can we demote our, our sense of national and partisan identity and raise 
Christian identity. I experienced that one in one way, the, the significance of national identity and partisan identity. And you guys may have you know seen in the press all the talks since January 6th of Christian nationalism. <clears throat> Uh, the assumption that Christians are going to be, you know, Republicans or in other circles, Democrats. I, I trust you experience the threat of national identity or partisan identity in different ways. If, if you're if you're in Northern Ireland or Ireland, you're, you're going to feel it in a slightly different way than you do, say, in 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 England. Or if you're in Scotland, it's it's, it's going to feel different. But but whatever whatever the case is. How do we demote national and partisan identity and raise Christian identity? That's a pastoral challenge, right? Uh, number two, this is going to sound weird, but I'll explain in a bit. How do we encourage people to place their political hopes first in the church? <laughs> not in the nation, not in the next election, not in whatever campaign. Number three, when is it time to offer a prophetic no to certain parties or candidates? When is it time to offer a prophetic no, quote unquote, prophetic no, like no, you can't do this, to certain parties or candidates? And how do we do this without subverting Christ to the other party? Suppose you lived in Germany in the early 1920s, and a Christian friend told you he had joined the National Socialist Germany Workers' Party, the Nazis. Like it's, the night, it's, early, it's the 20s mid to late 20s, you would have some misgivings, no doubt. But you probably wouldn't feel certain enough to excommunicate him or ban him from your church. Well, let's suppose he says that to you in the 19, early 1930s. Probably your misgivings with your Christian friend would have grown considerably. And you might start thinking about excommunication as evidenced by the 1934 Barman Declaration in which, as you know, the confessing church publicly denounced all Nazism. Okay, how much more would you be confident in that indictment if he said this to you by the early 1940s? Well, the point is, life and politics are not static. And with every passing day, we need a fresh dose of wisdom because the political landscape keeps changing. And Christians will have different opinions all along the way. And what pastors need is both the courage of Bonhoeffer and the clarity of a prophet for discerning when to offer a prophetic no to certain paths. You cannot walk down that path, Christian. Recognizing that saying you must not to one path should not be confused with you must to the other path. You must do this, and you must not do to, to do that. Ethically speaking, are asymmetrical, right? You must possesses a higher bond. If there's multiple lanes I can go down as a faithful Christian, uh, I should not step in as a pastor and, and, and say, you, you have to marry Sally, who's a Christian, instead of marrying Susie, who's a Christian. I, I can't do that, because marrying Sally and Susie are both legitimate options for me as, as a Christian. Whereas I can say, uh, you must not marry Samantha because she's a non-Christian. You see? In other words, there are times as pastors, I think, when, when you can politically say, you must not. A Christian cannot take that path. Again, with my Nazi illustration, that's an easy one. 
it's very, very hard to say you must. And there are multiple options available for a faithful Christian. But when is it time to say a prophetic no? That's, that's the question. Pastoral problem number four, foreground pastoral problem. How do we train our churches to, and ourselves, to distinguish between whole church issues, conscience-binding whole church issues, and Christian freedom issues? Church, you, this, this is a conscience-binding issue. You cannot be pro-abortion. You cannot, as a Christian, promote abortion. You cannot, as a Christian, promote racism. Uh, and a Christian freedom issue, flat tax or progressive tax, you know, this version of healthcare, that version of healthcare. Okay, number five, how do we help church members love one another amidst their disagreements? I'm convinced that every Christian must. Well, hold on, you know, are you saying I can't come to the Lord's table if I disagree with you on that one? I remember driving in a car with a political science professor, a friend of mine, a political science professor at a Christian university. And the, based on the things he was saying, I said, I said, hold on, brother. Are, are you saying that you know what Jesus thinks on, I don't know, health care and immigration policy and tax structures? And he said, yeah, I think I do. <laughs> I was just like, wow, you're an apostle. Right? That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the Holy Spirit has revealed to you as divine writ what Jesus thinks on health care, immigration policy, tax policy. Goodness, how do, how, do, how do we hire you as a church? Um, now, of course, I'm, I'm making fun, right? That, that's ridiculous. I would say those are Christian freedom issues. And I would say he was overstepping and wrongly he was at risk of wrongly binding Christian consciences and introducing a new kind of Phariseeism. But what we as pastors especially must have and then help our members to have is, is these two categories of, okay, this is a, this is a whole church conscience-binding issue. This is an implication of the gospel. And this is a, and, and, and required for obedience. And this is a Christian freedom issue. Got to think through those things, and I, I, I think most Christians today just they, they don't think with that level of like two baskets, two buckets. Um, I was tempted to say they don't think with that level of nuance. I don't, I don't think it's even that nuance. It's just just two categories, all right. Um, and we need to learn to think in those ways. And then finally, a, a pastoral, a, a pastoral challenge, foreground pastoral challenges. How do we prepare the saints for persecution? and encourage them towards in continued engagement in the public square? How do we prepare them for persecution and how do we encourage them towards continued engagement in the public square? Uh, I think it's easy to err towards utopianism, but it's also easy to err towards skepticism and withdrawal. And, and how do we avoid both? Now, something I'm always mindful of when I'm talking about these things is there's a sense in which on the one hand, I need to know my own context and what's available to people in an American context, right? What, what, what tools of government, are, are you able to vote, for instance? Are you able to lobby? Are you able, so I, I want to be aware of my own context when I'm thinking about these questions of faith and politics and church and state. 
but I'm also, I always try to be mindful of, of the context of brothers and sisters in places like Iran or China where, who don't have those opportunities available to them. If you're a Christian in China, you, you understand that you're pretty much excluded from um, holding a position of political authority. You cannot be a member of the Chinese Communist Party in good conscience, I don't think, as a Christian, right? Because it requires a, a, an affirmation of idolatry slash atheism of a kind. And uh, you see, you're excluded from high, high levels of business. Uh, so the things that we say and think about is, is we put together our political theology and what it means to be in the church in the world. On the one hand, you as pastors need to know, okay, I'm, I'm pastoring somebody here in you know, England or whatever, and that, that means these things. But at the same time, I, I, want my, my, I want to remember my brothers and sisters in other places as, as we theologize about these things. Okay, so these are some of the challenges I think we're up against. Let me pause and see if there's any questions before I jump into my next seven points. Any questions? And I think you're just going to have to start talking. Hmm. Can I just, so, uh, I missed what your second, um, the second point you made. In that, in the first, in the practical challenges, someone coughed, I think, and I missed oh, the pr practical challenges. Yeah, just the, the second one. What? The foreground pastoral challenges. How do we encourage people to place their political hopes first in the church? I okay, I didn't, I didn't camp there long, but that's what it was. Yeah. How do we encourage people to place their political hopes first in the church? Okay, okay. thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dr. Lehman, I don't know if it is just me, but uh, I um, heard better when you used your microphone. Now, oh, yes. Oh, no. yeah, thank you. How's that? Wonderful. Thank you. Is that better? Yeah, yeah. much better. Yeah, thank it was, you. It was, it was sitting over there. You were listening through it the whole time. I just forgot to put it on my... There we are. Sorry about that. My bad. Anybody else? Jonathan, I have a, um, it's Ian here at Mendesoni. Um, Thank you, Ian. I, I have a, a question of clarification, I guess. Um, yes. It seems, I, I get the impression that in your context in the States, people are prone, or some Christians are prone to put a lot of faith in um, politics as that kind of utopian solution, that, that a political solution will be uh, the silver bullet or whatever to, to solve uh, the problems of the nation. Yeah. Um, is, is that an accurate assessment? Because I think in the UK, I know very, very few people who have any sort of confidence or faith in any kind of political solution to anything. Um, so I just wonder if, is that a, is that a, a difference between our contexts or, or is, yeah. You know, it's funny. So I, was, I was I was looking over my notes yesterday. I was I was thinking about that very thing, and that was that was a question of mine whether, and that's where just not having lived on the ground in, in the UK since literally the nineties, um, I, I don't have a feel for that obviously, and I, I did I did wonder that. My, my guess was there is probably more skepticism in your nation than in my own about the about the the the, the possible good of politics, and as I understand it even especially among Christians, you're kind of a, even a smaller minority in a sense. You, you have little sense that you can um, get your hands on the levers of state power and, you know, usher in utopia than we would in the America. 
Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, honestly, ever since this um, this little event you guys might have heard of called the American Revolution um, in 1776, Americans as a culture, yeah, we're, 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 we put a lot of confidence in the state. We have a, a high view or of government to, to usher. Like on the one hand, we, we, we talk about small government. That's part of our DNA. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, we, we, we look to uh, civic authority as, as capable of um, um, ushering in the, the eschaton. Uh, there, there, there is a, there is a long myth of, of of American exceptionalism that we are God's, in Abraham Lincoln's words, almost chosen nation. And um, there is a a strong and deep tradition going back to not just the revolution, but even earlier to 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 the original settlers and, and colonialists of of the American Adam stepping in and, and establishing this new, and you can even see it in our dollar bill, this, this, uh, uh, what's the phrase, Latin phrase, nouveau secular ordum, a new secular order. You see language like this in Thomas, in, in uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, even of all people, um, you know, you'd expect something a little more sophisticated theologically than that, but, but, but there it is. And, um, yeah, I mean, we were the people who left. You are the people who stayed, right? We 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 had some sense that we could recreate Eden, and you guys, as it were, knew better, or your your ancestors knew better. Uh, so, <laughs> I love my country. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> uh, God bless America. <laughs> but but I think. Can I come back yeah, on that? No, I, I, I mean, I, I think that would have been. I think that is a distinction between my context and yours. Yes, that's the short answer. Somebody was saying something. But I just had to say, I think that might have been the case sort of in Britain back in the 19th century. But I think evangelicals have got smaller and smaller relations yeah. with wider society. Uh, the culture is much more secular. We're up about 100 years ahead of the US, or maybe. Yeah. Right yeah. And I think, we, so I think the context is very different, but we once were there too. I think there was a lot of confidence in nonconformists all supported Gladstone, Spurgeon supported Gladstone, liberal, the liberal party back in the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Ken. Yeah, Ken, Ken, Ken would really be able to speak into these, these distinctions, I suspect, having felt both. Um, <clears throat> nonetheless, I'm, I'm gonna proceed and, 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 and try to carve out a right understanding. Now, sometimes you'll hear me respond to saying things in response to my own context. Nonetheless, I think you guys will be able to situate it rightly for your context. So you, you might have to do a little bit of that translating for yourself, but I, I, I think we'll all get there. Any last questions that I'm going to press on? Okay. Uh, Church as political. What, what am I talking about? And this, and this, brothers, 
this really is meant to be kind of introductory in a sense to everything else that's gonna gonna come. So I'm just gonna be filling out some general points. Think think of this in some ways as the 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 uh, prelude to a to an opera, right? You're you're gonna hear first glimmers of themes, musical themes that will then be filled out in subsequent acts, right? Subsequent moments uh, over the coming week. Um, so this is just sort of high points running through what, what I think is, is crucial. Point number one, seven points. Point number one, the nation and their rulers are accountable to God and his rule. The nation and their rulers are accountable to God and his rule. Uh, if, if you want, turn to Psalm 2, where we see this very clearly. Uh, why, verse 1, Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So do you want to tell me that the public square is not a battleground of God's? It's exactly what it is. Kings and rulers rage against him, right? Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, Pilate, rage against him. The American president, the British prime minister, in a certain respect, rage against him. Jew and Gentile rage against him. And in a democracy, finally, it's, it's not a president or prime minister, too. It's who are the kings? Well, it's the voters. The voters of the earth rage against the Lord. And they don't just rage against the Lord, notice, they rage against the Lord and his anointed is Mashiach, as it says in Hebrew, is Messiah. The nations and their kings and their voters rage against the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Peter tells us, when we, if we were to fast forward and look into the early chapters of Acts, this is precisely, he quotes these verses and says, this is what you guys did in putting Jesus to death. There, there was the fulfillment of it, says Peter, in the crucifixion of Christ. And, and notice also how, how political all of this is. This is not just, you know, I, I have a religious objection. I have, I, have an, I have an epistemological objection to the idea that one could know God. You know, I, I, I just don't, I have some enlightenment questions here. It, it's, it's, not, it's not that. They want to cast off his rule. It is a political objection. I want to live my life and rule myself and rule my country the way I want to rule it, not the way he wants me to rule it. Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. Right? Jesus has declared himself to be king, and that goes against our desires to be king. The citizens and governments of China rage against the Lord, and Russia, and India, and Kindia, Kenya, and the UK, USA, Democrats and Republicans both rage against the Lord. Conservatives and labor and Lib Dems rage against the Lord, right? How, how can we be sure? Well, that's what this verse says. I mean, frankly, we all know this. Our, our hearts rage against the Lord in these ways. 
there are two kinds of governments in the Bible. Some governments in the Bible are better and some are worse. Good governments in the Bible shelter God's people. Pharaoh, at the time of Joseph, shelters and protects God's people. Almost inside, in spite of himself. Um, Avi Melech, at one point, the king is that Abraham encounters at times, protects them. Cyrus protects at one point. Meanwhile, other governments in the Bible devour God's people. So if Pharaoh at the time of Joseph protects God's people, Pharaoh at the time of Moses devours God's people. Early Nebuchadnezzar devours, late Nebuchadnezzar protects unusually, right, after he's humbled. Uh, Pilate devours God's people. Caesar? Well, when, when, when Paul appeals to him, ironically, he, he protects. But of course, we know in many other instances, Caesar devours. And there is, I would say, a kind of, and I suppose this it depends on your eschatology, there is a kind of beastly, think of the book of Revelation, think of Revelation 13, there is a beastly trajectory. And as I understand it, the beast is uh, associated with the government. And there is a beastly trajectory in Scripture towards the devouring of God's people. That, but that's not to say we shouldn't work for good government, because again, there are other governments in Scripture that uh, are protecting of God's people. And, and so it's not all bad all the time, right? Nonetheless, what we get here in Psalm 2 is, is this beastly trajectory, this raging against the Lord. It, there is something fundamental about this, at least according to this text. This isn't the only text, but it's a crucial text, right? Here at the beginning of the Psalter, set against Psalm 1 and the righteous man, right? Psalm 2 is like, well, on the other hand, but then it goes, of course, on to declare that this righteous man of Psalm 1, who's declared a son in Psalm 2, uh, will bring final judgment. Um, but nonetheless, I, I trust you guys feel, I feel this disdain towards the faith. We feel it in the media. We feel it in the academy. We feel it in the courtroom. There, there are pictures of this rage. Arguments on social media depict this rage. Uh, Caesars and governors of ancient Rome opposed Christians and sometimes threw them to the lines because because they believe that Christian refusal to worship Rome's God threatened the Roman way of life. Um, if, if, if you studied early persecution, you know that the, the Romans understood that their prosperity and their success rested on the favor of the Romans' gods. These Christians over here wouldn't pay tribute to our gods. That threatened to upset the gods of Rome. That threatened to upset our military might and our flourishing, economic flourishing. Therefore, we oppose you, Christians, right? And the God, the, I, I do think both citizens of, of your nation and mine also have many gods, right? We have the God of material comfort. We have the God of progress. We have the God of self-definition, the God of technology, the God of inclusivity, the God of sex, the God of safety. And we like our way of life. If you oppose my gods, I will oppose you. You will experience my wrath and my rage. Um, 
And so I do think there is a place as Christians, if we would most love our nations, we will oppose its false gods, but that will bring persecution. The good news, of course, is notice how Psalm 2 ends. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. <clears throat> there is a, a prophetic moment for the church to say, be, be warned, Joe Biden. Be warned, Boris Johnson. You know, be warned, Mr. Mayor. Be warned, O voter. Christ will come with judgment. Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. In fact, verse 12, kiss the son, bow down to him. How audacious is that? And of course, you guys know Psalm 2 isn't just speaking of Israel. It's speaking to the kings and the voters of the earth, right? And of course, it's not just the Old Testament that talks this way. It's the New Testament. Revelation 6, verse 15. Turn there. Look at that. Revelation 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, high political class, the lowest of political classes, hidden caves and among the rocks of the mountains, they call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? You know, so you notice there that judgment and wrath of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, will come to all kings and princes and military officers. It will come to people in high political office and low, slave and free. Why? Well, because they used whatever authority and opportunity and freedom God had given him to oppose him. Um, pick one random topic. Uh, I, I don't know exactly when same-sex marriage became legal in the UK. For, for new, in the US, it was 2015. And sometimes Christians will argue that we should support same-sex marriage because our view of marriage comes from the Bible. Non-Christians don't believe in the Bible, so we should not impose our view of marriage on them. One well-known evangelical scholar named Trimper Longman recently released a book on the Bible and politics in which he argues this very thing. We, we can't impose our, our, our view on, on others. <clears throat> well, I, I agree that we should not criminalize everything the Bible calls sin, but marriage law is not about criminalizing something. It's about subsidizing and supporting something. It's about giving financial incentives to it. So why would a Christian ever subsidize and support something which one day will cause the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, and everyone else, both slave and free, to hide and call to the rocks, hide us from the wrath of the land? I would say, Christian, why would you put your hand to that? No, non-Christians don't acknowledge the Bible as their book or Jesus as God. But is the Bible true? Is Jesus their judge? So why would you support something that brings the judgment of God? Um, when we're thinking about the relationship between politics and religion, here's a crucial point. Future judgment implies present rule. Future judgment implies present rule. If God is their judge, whether they acknowledge them or not, he is their ruler. 
And as we're thinking through these lines between what we stand up for and what we don't stand up for, future judgment implies present rule. So point one, the nations and their rulers are accountable to God and his rule, okay? You can find any number of other issues and we could work those through. Point two, churches speak for God and his rule. Churches speak for God and his rule. Psalm 96, verse 10. <clears throat> Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And isn't that the church's job, to act as the psalmist, to say among the nation, the Lord reigns? So when we say our king is your king and judge, we are making an inescapably political speech. And we take that speech into all nations, said Jesus, no matter what the Iranian ayatollahs or the Chinese Communist Party tells us. Or, or think of Jonah's sermon in Nineveh. Judgment's coming, right? That, there's, that's the sermon we get. He probably said more. That's what the inspired author of Scripture wrote down. Judgment's coming. And then we read, immediately the city believed God and repented. Now, Jonah's speech was evangelistic, yes, but can you think of a more powerful political speech than his? It changed a city, not an Israelite city, but a foreign city. And so for that reason, I love Michael Horton's reflections on the political nature of our message and work. He, he, he says, as a minister, I am called regularly by God to make a political speech, a deeply partisan political speech. However, it is not to rally the troops in defense of Christendom against the infidels of various sorts. It divides not between Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, Tory and labor, if you want, but between Christ and Antichrist. Preaching, it would seem, is political. So is evangelism. Okay, that brings us to point three. And, and notice what I'm... <coughs> excuse me. Notice what I'm doing in these remarks, brothers. I'm, I'm trying to maybe erase and eventually refashion your view of the relationship between politics and, and religion as these separate phenomenologies. Point three, the church is a political threat. The church is a political threat. Actually, it's 708. Let me see if there's any questions for a couple of minutes. And we'll hold point three until our return. Any questions what I've said so far? Any questions? I suppose um, uh, I, I find this very helpful and stimulating. Um, you'll probably bring this out as we go along. Um, when you said um, at one point, um, and I think it's one of your points about, um, you find it um, 
about being uh, the voters um, raised against God. I'm mindful of when Trump was voted in, I think 74% of the white evangelicals, and when he went out the door, I think that statistic still stands. So lots of, uh, I've just got your book in front of me, you've got Tisby in it. So in regards to race and justice, I'm aware that lots of um, the problems for minorities is found within the church. So I'd just be interested where you're going at in time. So it's, it's, it's nice speaking to this demographic, but I, I wondered if, so I'm looking at your book, I just wonder myself, what's changed? I'm not, I'm not sure I fully understand your question, brother. The, can, can you try it one more time? So I'm, I'm probably disinterested in where you go. So um, I get what, where we're going in this, but in regards to when you said about the nations um, being accountable to God and voters, um, I'm aware of lots of the church itself, the evangelical American church, um, you know, they, they voted and backed Trump. So it's just lots of issues and contention around race and justice yep. in the American church, which is playing out now within the UK. That's why I find it really helpful and stimulating. So I'm really interested where you're going to go in this in the future in regards to the complicity of the church in these yep. issues. Well. <laughs> you had to bring Trump into it, did you? <laughs> you can't not. <laughs> you can't not. Especially the evangelical church, you can't not. Yeah. I think that um, part of the problem is that, I mean, I, I, I could speak to Trump is in many respects, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not so much interested in telling you guys how I vote. Uh, I don't want to distract you with that. Um, I, I, th I think, uh, oh, wait, look, we're out of time. <laughs> I think there is a kind of complicity, yes. I don't think that complicity belongs merely to the political right. I think forms of complicity belong to the Christian political left as well. I think the complicity is in certain respects across the board because the temptations are common to all of us. The temptation to invest our hopes politically. Um, and so I think Trump represents potentially one form of complicity. That's not to say I think it's impossible for a Christian in good conscience to vote for Trump. I, I do think there is a, a, a place for a Christian to kind of hold one's nose and in the balance of costs and benefits decide uh, this is the best. Um, but I, I think that the widespread support and some of the rhetoric that you heard uh, indicated a kind of complicity. Yes, absolutely. And in, in, an, in an unjust one. I think there's similarly, though, a, a complicity on the left that I, I, I could get into. He, here's, here, let me say this final thing and we'll take our break. Uh, you, we, we talked a few moments ago about the differences between my side and your side of the pond and the hope that people would invest in politi 
politics. I actually, and I said, yeah, I, I do think there are differences that are rooted in, in American history and American exceptionalism. That said, I do think this is a chronic temptation. There is a chronic temptation for the people of God to be co-opted by putting hopes in the kingdoms of this world. Put not your trust in ho- horses or chariots, right? The prophets had to say that. They tried to co-opt Jesus. Satan tried to co-opt Jesus with political concerns of this world. All the kingdoms of the world I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Jerusalem tried to co-opt Jesus. Hosanna is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? He's going to overthrow Rome, yeah. Jesus' own disciples try to co-opt Jesus for their political purposes. Hey, who's going to sit on your right? Who's going to sit on your left? So it is a continual temptation for the people of God to be co-opted by the kingdoms and political forces and alliances and agendas of this world. I think that is going to be true in a certain sense, even of our brothers and sisters in China who have very little to no opportunity to put their hands on the levers of state power. Um, So, yes, I think this is a big deal. And in recent years in the United States, that has shown up as a kind of um, full-on support for partisan agendas on the right and with Trump. Um, Let's take a look. You guys made me go four minutes over. So I I think we have a five-minute break. Um, your your questions is you're emailing them in are are super helpful thank you please please continue to do that i've noticed something about your questions which is they're all very um they're very they're very much at the the level of of kind of if i could put it like this felt needs like like what do we do with what do we do with uh what i should or shouldn't preach um how, how involved should we be in party politics um where, where, what is the tra- where is the tra- political trajectory going in churches today that you you perceive? Uh, is there great pressure on us to become woke left? And, and those are the kinds of questions that you deal with on an everyday level. Um, uh, and those those are the answers to those questions are going to emerge slowly over the week. So I, I really do want to help you guys build your theology so that you can begin answering some of those questions rather than just answering them directly you know the difference between giving you a fish and teaching you to fish so so uh but 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 that'll but that'll but that'll but that'll come right so just just be be patient as as we try to get to them but this is helpful for for me so thank you and if you haven't sent in things yet do continue to send them i'm i am looking at them and we'll be accounting for them um okay number one i said um what was point one? Point one was nations and the rulers are accountable to God and to his rule. Point two was churches speak for God and his rule. Point three, the church is a political threat. <clears throat> Let me unpack that. Turn, turn in your Bibles to Acts 19. Turn to Acts 19. And verses 23 and following, you see there tells the story of Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines for the goddess Artemis. 
And Demetrius was convinced that Christians were a political threat. So he gathers his fellow craftsmen together and he complains about Paul. Look at verse 26. This Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And Paul's gospel work obviously gives Demetrius religious concerns. Quote, the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Skipping some, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Yet, of course, Demetrius's deeper concerns were economic ones. Look at verse 27. This trade of ours may come into disrepute. And then at the inclusion, conclusion of Demetrius's speech, we know that a riot ensues. Now, Demetrius had a point, right? He's not wrong. The life and activity of faithful Christians will disrupt false worship. And that disruption will unfold or will play out economically. Our trade will come into disrepute. And politically, a riot ensues. Yet that's not the whole story. The book of Acts also suggests that Christians don't necessarily have an interest in overthrowing the state of the marketplace. Now turn to chapter 24, Acts 24, look at verse 5, and here you have the Jewish high priest, like Demetrius, he's, he's on Demetrius' side, as it were, accusing Paul of, 24 verse 5, stirring up riots. You're a troublemaker, Paul. You're, you're threatening a present system. That's what I mean when I say he's he's on Demetrius's Demetrius's side. You're you're you're, you're <clears throat> troubling our present system. Yet now turn to chapter twenty-five, verse twenty-five. <coughs> Excuse me, and you have the Roman governor Festus considering the charges against Paul. He he surveys the evidence, and then look at chapter twenty-five, verse twenty-five. Festus concludes, I have found nothing that he has done deserving death. In other words, by, by Rome's lights, Paul was not an insurrectionist who wanted to overthrow the government. He didn't have a quote-unquote political program that Rome was worried about. So now what I want you to do is putting all this together, brothers, I want you to hold Demetrius the Silversist conclusion together with Festus, the Roman governor's conclusion. And I want, I want to stare at both of these at the same time, okay? So on the one hand, yes, Christians and churches are a threat to the stability of the Roman, or American or British, way of life. But no, they are not out to provoke civil strife. Yes, the presence of Christians in a society will prove to be bad for businesses based on wickedness and idolatry. But no, mobs of church members will not tear down temples and shops and networks. Yes, churches will challenge the idols and false gods that prop up every government whether the gods of the Roman Empire or the gods of the secular West, but no, they don't try to overthrow the state. 
In other words, brothers, Christians and churches who preach the gospel will always pose a threat, yet it's not the threat of an invader or insurrectionist, it's the threat of a virus or, or termites. <laughs> I think of um, Matrix, you know, and, and Agent Smith is like, you humans are like a virus. Well, that's kind of what Christians are. We, we're, we're something that quietly works on the inside and chews away at the found, foundations of a, of a marketplace or a government until the idol collapses along with the regime or economy sustained by that idol. Do you see? So every government, every marketplace is propped up, rests on certain idols. We don't, we don't attack the marketplace or the government. We attack the idol through our preaching and our living. And eventually that can be undermined, which causes the marketplace to collapse. So insofar as your Christian faith and your church threaten the gods on which the state or the marketplace relies, you should expect persecution. Persecution is rational. The Chinese government is rational in its opposition to Christians. Because what Christians are pre preaching truly threatens their authority right? In a certain respect. And on the one hand, the, 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 at the same time, that's one hand. On the other hand, the Christians in China should be the best citizens. They're the most obedient and the most, hey, look, we're trying to help society and obey the laws and so forth. So there is a two-handedness for Christians in China as they think about their relationship to the Chinese Communist Party. And so with Christians in your nations and mine, when Christians say Jesus is Lord and therefore we won't worship Artemis or buy things to support the Artemis industry, we put jobs in that industry at stake. The lobbyists hired by that industry will oppose us, followed by the congressmen or members of parliament with Artemis factories in their districts. And should we be surprised or panicked by this? Well, no, not at all. Psalm 2 again, verse 4, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So, brothers, you know, in Christ, there shouldn't be any panic among us. Even as they, even as persecution is rational, we should not be surprised by it. In fact, let me put it this way. If your church is not a political threat to those around you, could it be that you've adapted to your surroundings more than you realize? Um, think of, think of, think of, Paul writing in Philemon, to Philemon, exhorting him to receive Philemon no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. And consider who Paul is exhorting here. He's not exhorting Onesimus the slave. He's exhorting Philemon, the one sitting, dare I say, in a position of economic and political privilege. Now think for a second how Philemon could have responded in the flesh. He could have said, "Oh, hold on, Paul. Let's 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 be reasonable. Our entire economy depends upon indentured servitude." Imagine how Philemon's wife and friends, and maybe maybe his dad, would have responded. You know, you know, Philemon. You know, you picture Philemon talking to his father. He's inherited all of this, and these slaves from his father, and now he's talking to his father, and. His father's saying, look, I, I don't mind that you're a Christian, but, but Paul's just a little over, your, you know, your friend Paul here is just a little overzealous. He, he doesn't understand how these things work. 
And uh, if you're really going to go start treating those slaves that you've inherited from me as freedmen, and, and, and if, if, if you're going to treat them as, what'd you call them, brothers in Christ, I, I'm not sure I'm going to hand you my estate. I think I'm going to need to give it to your brother. At this point, Philemon's wife is saying, what? What are you doing? Right. Uh, you can easily see how Philemon, by taking Paul's advice and treating Onesimus as a beloved brother, would have incurred his friends and family's anger. In other words, Paul's preaching to Philemon posed a kind of political threat. Uh, people talk about identity politics like it's a new thing. It's not new. It's as old as Babel and as widespread as our tribes and our nations. It is fallen politics. I identify with my tribe. I fight for them. You know, several hundred years ago, I would have said I'm American, not British. Americans are good. British are bad. The redcoats are coming. Uh, you know, a hundred years ago, I would have said I'm Northern, not Southern. Northerners good, Southerners bad. I'd say I'm white, not Hispanic, Asian, or African. White's good, others less good. I'm Republican. I'm college educated. I'm progressive minded, the opposite of those bad. But then the gospel comes in and it identifies us first and foremost with a new family, a new nation. Your family, your nation, your party, your group won't understand that. They'll accuse you of disloyalty and injustice. You become a threat, you see? And I think you see that in bold relief when Muslim parents disown baptized children. But I trust some of you brothers have may experienced it as well when you maybe told your, your high school friends that, they're, that you're a Christian. You're a what? So the gospel cuts across all social groups, all identities, and creates a new identity and new group. So it's not just an individual threat. Hey, the Bible says we can't sleep with our girlfriends. I want to sleep with my girlfriend. It creates a new social threat because it creates a new identity and a new group a new nation, citizens of a new kingdom. And it's here inside this new group called the local church where we model and work to model a better justice, a more beautiful righteousness. And so the Roman emperor Julian, trying to revive paganism, complains in a letter to a friend, these impious Galileans, Jesus followers, these impious Galileans not only feed their poor, but ours also. We got to do something, right? They persecute us because of our good works, even. And brothers, if we're a political threat, that brings us to point four. Point four, <clears throat> the church's most powerful political activity is to be the church. Point four, the church's most powerful political activity is to be the church. Uh, we, we, we've had a conversation about the difference between your nation and my nation about whether or not Christians invest any political hopes in the church. And, and again, just speaking for my nation, we, we have called the nation a city on the hill. I, I trust British Christians do not do that. Uh, perhaps I, I've never heard that, but we, we, we do, we do, um, we do call our country a city on the hill. Multiple presidents have done that. Abraham Lincoln 
uh, in his famous second inaugural address, talked about providing a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations, a just and lasting peace with ourselves and among all nations. What a glorious vision that is. But just, but, but, but who does Jesus call the city on the hill? And, 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 and where should we truly find a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations? Where, where should that vision first take root and grow? And, and, and you know, the answer is in our local churches. Our churches are to be the cities on hills. Our churches where, is where, are where we should first beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. The church is where we first learn to love our enemies, right? They are the political hope. Conversion makes us citizens of Christ's kingdom. Conversion places us inside of embassies of that kingdom and it puts us to work as ambassadors of heaven's righteousness and justice. And in that regard, whatever you guys are responding to in your context, and I'm responding to in my context, the, the, the prescription is the same. Whatever problems diag we, we diagnose, the prescription is the same. And that is the local church is to be a model political community for the world. As I said, it's where we first learn to love our enemies. I, by birth, wanted to be king. You, by birth, in your fallen self, wanted to be king. That makes us enemies. I'll, I'll ally with you insofar as your kingness works together with mine. But as soon as you oppose me, we go to war. And it's in the local church where we, we, we set those swords down. We, as I said, beat them into plowshares and we learn to love each other. The church is the most political of assemblies because it does represent the one with final judgment over presidents and prime ministers. And it's in the local church that we confront and the call the nations with the light of our king's words and the saltiness of our lives. And um, <clears throat> to some extent, we need to shift our focus from redeeming the nation to living as a redeemed nation, from transforming the culture to living as a transformed culture. One of you asked about that in your questions. To what extent should we give ourselves to those activities? Uh, whether or not Brits put their hopes in, in, in the nation, you do see that sort of language in your missional literature that I, I read from your side of the pond, right, on, on redeeming culture and redeeming, you know, transforming the city. So that sort of stuff shows up there, too. And what I'm saying is we need to focus first on being that redeemed nation, transforming the culture inside of the church. And then the lessons we learn inside of the church should inform our public engagement outside of it. Okay. Uh, let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me give you a story about what I mean by the political nature of the story with a, a story about one of my fellow church members. His name is Charles. Actually, it's not his real name, but I'm going to call him Charles. And uh, Charles is a Washington, D.C. speechwriter. And he has written speeches for cabinet members and party chairmen for people whose names, if you follow American politics, you would know. His work, to be sure, puts him at the center of American politics, right? Now, Charles also spends time with Freddie. Freddie, who was homeless, became a Christian and joined our church. 
And after several good years, the church discovered that Freddie was stealing money from members of the church to support a drug addiction. He would lie and steal to support his drug addiction. So after pursuit of him and a calling into repentance and a refusal to repent and cover over his sins, we, we sadly removed him from membership in the church as an act of discipline. And that's when Charles entered the picture in Freddie's life. At that point, Charles, the speechwriter, began spending time with Freddie, the, the liar and the thief. And little by little, Freddie, praise God, began to repent. And eventually, Charles helped Freddie stand in front of our entire congregation, confess his lying and his stealing, and ask for forgiveness. And it, 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 was, it was a beautiful evening. I, I, would, I would love to take five minutes and just recount it to you. I won't. But obviously, we, we, we clapped and we cheered and we embraced Freddie and, and Charles and Freddie both crying. Uh, okay, here, here's, here's the GDP-sized question for you, brothers. Which Charles is the quote-unquote political Charles? Is it the speechwriter or is it the disciple-maker? Let me ask it another way. Which Charles deals with welfare policy, housing policy, criminal reform, education? Well, the answer clearly is both. In fact, Charles will tell you that the political life of the disciple maker fashions and gives integrity to the political life of the speechwriter. It's the same man working, the same king ruling, the same principles of justice and righteousness applying, the same politics in play, okay? Our politics, brothers in Christ, begins in the church and in our lives together and with our relationships with that, that older lady or that older man in the congregation or the younger ones and the weak ones and the immature ones and the differently ones with different ethnic and national backgrounds, that's where our politics as Christians begins, and everything outside needs to roll out of it. And that brings us to point five. We must learn to be before we do. Point five, we must learn to be before we do. <clears throat> if the most powerful political thing we can do is be the church, we must learn to be before we be something on the inside, before we do something on the outside, Okay. So as you know, my own church is here in the Washington, D.C. area. It's filled with young people like Charles who moved to D.C. wanting to make a difference by working in various spheres of government and, and their work matters, praise God. But as one of the elders of, their, of, of the church, first at Capitol Hill Baptist and now at Chevrolet Baptist, I have to say to them, don't tell me you're interested in politics if you're not interested in pursuing a just and righteous politics among other members of the church, young and old black, white, Hispanic, Asian. So Paul asked the Jews of his day, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? I've got a few questions of my own. You who call for immigration reform, do you practice hospitality with visitors to the church who are ethnically or nationally different from you? Uh, you who speak against abortion, do you also embrace and assist the single mothers in the church? Do you encourage adoption? You who talk about welfare reform, do you give to the needy in our church? You, know, you who care about issues pertaining to race, 
Uh, do all your friends look just like you? Uh, you who are concerned about the economy and the job market, uh, do you obey your boss with a sincere heart, not as a people pleaser, but as you would obey Christ? You who share political opinions on social media, do you gladly share the Lord's Supper with the church member who disagrees? Do you pray for his or her spiritual good that they would be blessed? So when I say we must be before we do, I mean the local church should strive first to live out justice and righteousness and love in its life together. And then we can commend an understanding of justice and righteousness and love to the nations. What, what, what would you say to the person going around on the parenting lecture circuit? Hey, folks, this is how you parent while your own children are abused or abandoned. Say, no, you, you, you can't. Talk, talk to me about parenting once you go home and deal with your own house first, okay? Judgment begins with the household of God. Point six, point six. What time would we go to? I didn't check. I should have done that. Anybody want to tell what time do we go to here on this lecture? One o'clock. One o'clock. And, and if anybody's talking, I can't hear you. Yeah, there's some news. One o'clock. We go to one o'clock. Uh, one. Ah, okay, I can hear you now. I just fixed my thing. What time do we go to? One. One. That's 15, 16 minutes. Great. Okay. Great. Thank you. Uh, point, point, point six. Let the state do its job and let the church do its job, and those are separate jobs. Let the state do its job, let the church do its job, and those are separate jobs. I say that because based on what I've said so far, you might wonder, Jonathan, are you advocating theonomy? God law, theonomos, God law. Ancient Israel was a theonomy. If by theonomy you mean, I think God's view of justice and righteousness should guide our lawmaking, well then yes. But then in that regard, everyone is a theonomist because we all, as I said, enter the public square on behalf of our God or God's. But if you mean I think the state should do the church's job and the church should do the state jobs, then certainly not. I do believe, and even though you are in a church-established country, you're all Baptists, or mostly Baptists, so I trust you're going to be with me on this one. The, the Bible separates church and state. It gives them separate jobs. I do not think that is a Lockean idea. I think that is a biblical idea. God has given the power of the sword to government, and he's given the power of the keys to churches. And I believe he tends for them to work cooperatively, but separately. You do not want your mayor making decisions about baptism or doctrine. And you don't want your pastor saying who will or will not go to prison. The trouble is, as I said to you in, the, in, in some of my opening remarks, is most Christians have very little to no ecclesiology, and non-Christians certainly don't. And so when it comes to conversations about the separation of church and state, we tend to misconstrue it as being about the origin of ideas, where ideas come from, as if to say, when an idea originates in someone's religion, especially organized religion, 
we should not bring that into the public square and impose it on others. Hey, you, you cannot say that human beings are created in God's image or that that marriage belongs to a man and a woman because you learned that from your church when your preacher opened his Bible and preached from it, right? That the, the non-Christian says to the Christian, that idea originates in your religion. You can't impose it on me. Okay. But does that mean you can't impose your idolatrous and non-Christian views on me? Well, see, there's the catch. Our non-Christian friend has no official church and no God with a name. And there's no such thing as a separation of idolatry in state. Too bad for me, lucky for him. All right? The separation of church and state is not about where we get our ideas about justice from. You get your ideas from the Bible. Right? You get your idea about justice from your loins. Why should yours count and mine don't? No, biblically speaking, the separation of church and state is about jurisdictional authority. What has God authorized each of these institutions, church, state, family, to do? What jurisdiction? Um, side note, brothers, if you do not teach your congregation ecclesiology, they will not understand the separation of church and state, and they will misconstrue it. And therefore, they will forsake some of the responsibilities God gives to the church and God gives to the church and state. And that's why we, we need, in this whole area, a doctrine of the church. And I'll spend a lot of our lecture time on that. Point seven, <clears throat> turning then to the public square, our job is to represent the king. <clears throat> and here, a Christian's political posture must never be withdraw, but nor should our posture to be to go in and dominate bring heaven to earth now, rather our posture must always be to represent. And we do this whether the world loves us or despises us. We do this whether we have little to no vote, like our brothers and sisters in China or Iran, or we do this in a quote-unquote Christian country, right? Um, we are there to represent, not to bring heaven to earth. And we give hope to the nation, not by mimicking its tactics, but by representing the king everywhere we go. So if you, if you claim, you know, I would say to, you know, the folk who show up to you on Sunday, if you claim to care about politics, but you're not an active member of a local church, I'm, I'm tempted to think you don't understand politics at all, Christian. You're like someone who claims to love cars because you play with little toy cars on the ground making room noises. And, and that's why my own church cares about politics, but it starts with our life together. That's why my own church cares about welfare policy. So when church member Jane found herself homeless with a, in, a, in a, my, my former church, we, we tried to place her in safe housing. And due to various mental difficulties, she refused to help, refused our help, and chose to sleep in a park instead. And so Luther went down to the park with her and slept on a nearby bench. He was deeply concerned for her welfare, to say the least. My, my church cares about tax policy. And so Carlos, who spends his working days explaining to U.S. Congregation, Congress the, uh, uh, the tax implication of new legislation, 
He spent many an evening helping a family in crisis in our church with their taxes. And he's worked with their creditors and collection agencies because of their uncontrolled debt. We care about tax policy. Uh, my church also believes it's important to address our America's race problem, or at least our own race problem. So I remember one Sunday, Patty came up to me, and she had heard in the, the morning announcements at church that I was going to be giving a talk on race in the evening. And so she came up to me, and she confessed. She said, uh, uh, Jonathan, I, I'm, I'm really embarrassed to admit this, but I'm 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 glad you're going to be speaking on race tonight because I don't like black people. I, I really struggle with their culture and the way they talk and things they laugh at. I, just, I know that's wrong. That's just where my heart is. And I said to Patty, Pat, Patty, do you, do you know, uh, you know, Tom and Laura? And Tom was an older, godly, uh, African-American man in the church, married to a, a Filipino wife. And she's like, yes. I said, well, tell you what. Call them up. Uh, invite yourself over to dinner. And tell them everything you just told me. <laughs> and she said, are you serious? And I said, I think so. The thing is, I, I knew Tom and I knew Laura and I knew how they would respond to her, right? I, I wouldn't do that with just anybody, obviously. And to my surprise, she took me up on my offer or my suggestion. Yet not to my surprise, Tom and Laura responded remarkably and wonderfully. And they listened and they forgave her and they encouraged her in the gospel. And Patty on that evening over dinner learned to repent of her racism a little bit and learned to recognize, okay, this is my brother and sister in Christ. And I actually have more in common with them than I have with other white Americans, you see? So our church cares about our race problem. In, in other words, brothers, real politics begins not with our political opinions, but with our everyday decisions. It begins not with public advocacy. It begins with our personal affection. It begins not all by ourselves, sitting behind a cue board, tweeting, Facebooking, telling people what we think. It begins with a people. It begins in our congregations and our relationships with each other. In other words, it's inside the local church where Christian politics becomes complicated, becomes authentic, it becomes credible, it becomes not ideologically enslaved, it becomes real. Okay, and it's in these real life situations where you're forced to think about what righteousness truly is and what justice truly requires and what obligations you possess towards your fellow God imagers and what you yourself are made of. And as we'll explore, churches are heaven's ambassadors of, of this other nation. Churches are the embassies of this other nation. And therefore, neither panic 
nor triumphalism are appropriate for us. A cheerful confidence is appropriate for us because we know Jesus will win. And we know that we represent this heavenly and future kingdom now, whether the skies in our culture are cloudy or clear. Okay. Uh, we have six minutes. What questions do you have before lunch? I, yes, I see in the back of the classroom, striped shirt. Yeah, that's it. Um, just thinking about point six. Your name. Andy, Andy. Andy, speak up nice and loud. So just thinking about point six, um, about the state doing its job and the church doing its job. Yeah. Um, what do you do when competing, when authority structures have sort of competing interests um, that maybe don't align? So I'm thinking COVID would be the obvious example. So yeah, the right. state has an interest in the health of its people and might say churches we need to shut but the church says well hang on my responsibility is to be preaching the gospel uh, and how, how do you through those kinds of issues yeah great question I, I, i'm gonna i'm gonna get to this i'm gonna get to that a little bit later in 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 a, a, a lecture um uh, let, let me try to summarize very briefly right now. Yeah, sometimes those lines of jurisdiction overlap and, and, and both parties have a compelling interest in, in, in what's at stake. Uh, let, let me set aside, let me speak about that in principle, then I'll, I'll get to your COVID thing. Uh, in principle, um, for instance, who, who has final authority over the child, a parent or the government? What do you think, Andy? Who has final authority over a child, a parent or the government? Well, I would say that the parent has a, a very important interest, but if they were abusing their child, then clearly the government has a responsibility to step in. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So in certain respects, the government has final authority. If they're abusing the child, the, the, the government steps and says, this is my citizen. No, you may not do that. On the other hand, when it comes to uh, raising the child and religious instruction, if the state steps in and says, no, you will not indoctrinate your child in, in matters of, of, of the faith, and no, you, you cannot tell your child that they are, they are a male when your child is claiming to be a female, and we will take away you know, your rights as a parent if you do not go along with the, um, the, the NHS and, and what its, its counselors are prescribing for this child who decides to change their gender. I, I would say no. That's a usurpation on the part of the state, and that, that that's an abuse of authority on their part. And the, and the parent has final jurisdiction, right? Um, so what you have is you have at times overlapping jurisdictions, and there is no set of case law in the Bible to adjudicate that. And we're left needing wisdom and the fear of the Lord knowing that final judgment is going to be rendered over the state, over the parent, on judgment day. And so we make our, based on wisdom, best judgment now. Because on judgment day, the only one with absolute authority and absolute judgment, the Lord, Jesus, sometimes will say, Christian, you should have submitted to the state. And sometimes, Lord Jesus will say, state, you shouldn't have usurped the authority of the parent. So there's no black and white case law which resolves all these areas of overlap for us. And we use judgment now, knowing that one day we'll give a final account again to King Jesus. You see? 
And I can't, I can't clean it up for you any more than that. It's necessarily in the realm of wisdom. Okay, so you go to something specific like COVID. Well, historically, Protestants have made a distinction between matters that are um, in sacra and matters that are circa sacra in sacred things, in sacra, circa sacra, around sacred things. Churches clearly have been given authority in sacra, in sacred things. Uh, the state, you could say, possesses some measure of authority in matters circa sacra, around sacred things, right? Uh, and the fact that we are, we are bodies, physical bodies, gathering together in geographic space, and therefore the state has some interest in our gathering together to making sure that we we comply with certain safety standards and, and, and you know we would call them zoning laws or tax laws or, or or matters that govern the gathering of people together the state has an interest there right and so uh you know during world war ii for instance the u.s government uh asked churches not to meet on Sunday evenings because there were blackout requirements. I assume something must have been, been in, in, must have been the case in, in Britain as well, certainly for cities on coastal cities. Um, I think that's a reasonable thing for the government to ask based on its jurisdiction assigned by God in protecting lives. And so when it comes to COVID restrictions, yeah, there, there's a certain circus sacra around sacred things not what's doctrine, not what should you do when you gather, but around sacred things and preserving lives gathered together that the government has a legitimate claim to from scripture. But as soon as it starts to move in sacra, in the sacred things, yeah, that's where it becomes problematic. So something like a singing restriction, for me, that's, that's tough. That's a tough one, right? Can they tell us not to sing? Yeah. We're commanded to sing, uh, you know, anyway. So, but, but again, you're going to have to make a judgment knowing that the final judgment is going to come on, on from King Jesus himself. Any other questions? Great question, Andy. Thank you. I have a question. Um, when you were mentioning this case of the black uh, person in your church. Mrs. Um, Daniel. Yes. Sorry, Daniel. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, Daniel Caballero. Um, the question is, is racism not to like a culture? I think the question is more like why I do not like this culture. But, but the general question is, what about, what about if I don't like a culture? Uh, or is that, does that count as racism? And a culture, I don't just mean a skin color, but everything that is involved in a particular culture. Thank you. Yeah, right, 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 right. No, I mean, uh, racism in, 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 in the modern context is a very specific thing that tends to be, sweetie, I'm going to take a break in a few minutes and I can help you, okay? Race, racism is a very specific thing that is tied to skin color. Um, and it's, 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 I think it is, insofar as it's tied to skin color, I do think it is always wicked. Now, does that mean that certain practices that any given group of people, whether racially identified, ethnically identified, economically identified, 
nationally identified might not be wise or unwise, wicked or not wicked. No, sure, they can be. So, for instance, uh, um, you know, let me, let, me, let me pick on white Americans. I mean, wh wh white Americans can be very often given to a, a form of, of consumerism and, and greed and uh, in, a, in a way that doesn't typify all white Americans, but many white Americans. Uh, we can be given to a form of individualism and consumerism, and these are these are problems, right? We we can be given to, I would say, very often, not always, but often, white supremacy. Okay, the, these these are elements of my own white culture in America that are sinfully problematic, and should be addressed, absolutely. And by the same token, you know, the mere fact that you're a quote unquote oppressed minority does not mean you are not incapable of sin of course you're capable of sin all have fallen and short of the glory of god and so are say black americans capable of of, of certain kinds of sin even sins that will typify uh th that group as a identifiable group yeah I, I i think there are and can be um so that's why this conversation daniel is so complicated because on the one hand, you do not want to indict people for, a, you know, skin color. On the other hand, we've all, again, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and some of those sins are not just individuals, but they typify the groups that we belong to, however you identify those groups. And there needs to be an ability to speak against those sins prophetically as churches. But when people identify themselves with their groups... That becomes very hard to do. Are you just saying that because I'm white? You just saying that because I'm black? Well, no. At least I don't mean to be. I hope I'm not. Maybe I am. I'm, I'm trying not to. Right? And it takes <clears throat> incredible pastoral care in knowing how to step into these conversations and address some of these types of things. Brothers, we've gone four minutes over. I've gone four minutes into your lunch. And yes, I am stealing those four minutes because we're going to start again according to the schedule. All right. Which I believe is two o'clock your time. Yes. So Lord willing, I'll see you in.
But in terms of the 1618 All right. Hello, friends. <coughs> Looks like people are gathering back in. All right. It's 9.01. I'm 2.01. Uh, let me open us in prayer. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. Thank you for the church. Thank you for uh, your death on behalf of the church, for the church, paying the penalty that we deserve. Thank you for your resurrection and your defeat of sin and death and its grip on us. Thank you for removing the curse. Thank you for uniting us as a people. You've raised us up and seated us in the heavenlies, but you've also brought us who are far off near and made new one, one new man. Help us to Reflect on that well now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Um, lecture one, you could have entitled The Church is Political. Lecture two, you could entitle The Church is Crucial. Why the Doctrine of the Church is Crucial. And in this first lecture, I'm going to be very much thinking about um, the connection between the gospel and the church. And in some sense, I'm going to be giving you an apologetic for the doctrine of the church, because even evangelicals overlook the importance of the doctrine of the church and why it's crucial. And so I'm going to be making a defense for it in this, in this lecture. Just to help you forecast where we're going from here, uh, in the next lecture, I'm going to then back up to hermeneutics and how do we read our Bible institutionally. So Lord willing, we'll get the, through these two lectures in our, our two lectures now, in this today. So first, why is the doctrine of the church crucial? <clears throat> and then the next lecture will be uh, how do we read our Bibles institutionally, and by which institutionally, I mean, for understanding what a church is and what the state is, could also be applied to parents, but we won't be your families, but we won't be going there so much. After that, we're going to do a biblical tomorrow morning, first thing, Lord willing, we will do a, um, a biblical theology of the covenants. And it's as we work through the covenants, starting with the Adamic and Noahic, we're going to discover a doctrine of the state, biblical theology of the state. Um, I'll probably get into justice at that point. I haven't entirely decided. But insofar as justice is the domain of the state, I think when we get up to the Noahic covenant, we'll give a doctrine of the state and then um, justice. But then we'll jump back into, so, so kind of it's like going through the storyline 
and, and pausing there at the Noahic Covenant to kind of off-road and do a doctrine of the a systematic doctrine of the state. But then we'll get back onto the freeway, back onto the highway in the biblical storyline. And then we'll go to the Adamic and Mosaic Davidic New Covenant to once again off-road and do our doctrine of the church at more length. Um, and that'll be tomorrow's work. And maybe the next day, Lord willing. Okay. <clears throat> End of the next day. So that's, that's where we're going. But first right now, thinking about um, why the doctrine of the church is crucial. Uh, <clears throat> I have, if, if you want an outline for this lecture, I have an A, B, C, and D. Okay. Here's, and I'm going to make them very clear to you because I know you're not working with notes. I would if I were there, I might hand out, here's letter A for this lecture. Evangelicals sometimes dismiss the importance of the doctrine of the church. Evangelicals sometimes dismiss the importance of the doctrine of the church. Big capital letter A. Okay. Um, since the days, at least of George Whitfield and his revivals, I think that evangelicals have tempted to downplay the significance of the local visible institutional church. We're happy to talk about invisible universal church, big C church. That's just another way of talking about Christians though, but the local visible church, is that really important? I think in some ways though, this goes even more deep than George Whitfield. It, 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 it goes to Christendom, right? And the idea of a Christian nation, this is part and parcel of, a, of, of an Anglican DNA or a German Lutheran church DNA or Roman Catholic Spain. So in, in many ways, this falls back on, on, on the concepts of Constantinian settlement in Christendom that we prioritize this idea of the universal church. And for our connectionalist Anglican Lutheran Methodist friends, the, 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 the visible church is the universe. The universal church does have a visible element in, in the church hierarchy, right, in the structures. But even among Baptists like us, since the days of George Whitfield's revivals, we can downplay the significance of the local institutional visible church. So Whitfield, you, you, you probably recall, was an early 18th century evangelist who traveled around Great Britain and colonial America, preaching the gospel to thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people at a time. Countless people were converted through his preaching. His revivals were the centerpiece of, of, of the movement, which historians call the First Great Awakening, a movement which continues to affect both of our nations and culture even to this day. Yet Whitfield, interestingly, was an Anglican, often found himself having to preach in Baptist or Presbyterian churches because many of his Anglican ministers refused to lend their pulpits to him. They were more interested, you could say, in protecting their ecclesial turf than in sinners turning to Christ through repentance and faith. And the quiet lesson that gospel believers have drawn from such experiences is that the gospel alone matters. A local church and all our talk about the ordinances and church government don't matter such that Bill James can introduce me and refer to the peculiarity of the fact that I'm interested in church government. He, and he's right. These days, that is peculiar, right? 
Uh, after all, talk about ordinances and church government only provokes arguments between Christians. It's the gospel that's essential for salvation. Church membership is not. So why worry about it? And a similar spirit took hold among the generations known as the neo-evangelicals starting in the 1950s with the Crusades of Billy Graham, beginning of the magazine Christianity Today and the establishment of non-denominational seminary Fuller. Graham was happy to refer to individuals who came forward at his rallies to make profession of faith, the churches of all denomina denominational shades and stripes. Again, it's the gospel alone that counts, not our denominational differences, right? And uh, on, on my side of the pond, pond, evangelical Christianity, and I think on your side, you, you know, you have the, the, the conversations between um, that, that Ian Murray wants to highlight between a more ecumenical evangelicalism and the more sectarian versions of that, which show up in, in, in Britain in different ways. But in, in, in both places, we increasingly center our Christianity, our discipleship around something less than the local church and something more amorphous and movement driven. So parachurch ministries like InterVarsity, Campus Crusade, uh, undertake the work of evangelizing the next generation. People look to magazines for their Christian news and gossip. Television and radio and pastor celebrities become nationally known, sometimes internationally known names. Worship music moves from church pews to popular Christian bands on the Christian radio station. And little by little, individual Christians grow as disciples less inside of the family of accountability known as a local church and all its members. And increasingly, they grow outside the church anonymously, somewhere on the ether of radio waves and magazine subscriptions and a false sense of intimacy with celebrity preachers and media voices. And how much more has this even more been the case since the advent of the internet and social media, right? And this offers you, I think, a picture of evangelical Christian Christianity to some extent in the United States and Great Britain, insofar as, as Americans and British have sent missionaries around the world, you, you see characteristics of this in Christian life around the world. And in general, I think there's a temptation for evangelical or gospel-believing Christians to operate in just two gears. One, essential for salvation, and two, non-essential for salvation and therefore unimportant. Right? We just have those two gears. So we all agree that the local church is not essential for salvation. Think of the thief on the cross. He confesses Jesus is Lord, and Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. And the thief never joined a church, right? So the local church must be completely unimportant, right? Like, is my question be, is it possible there's a third gear, an in-between gear? Not essential for salvation, but crucial for it. Or not essential for salvation, but essential for protecting the gospel over time and essential for obedience and faithfulness and gospel witness. All right. That brings us to letter B uh, in the outline. The gospel creates a church. The gospel creates a church. Uh Notice I didn't say it creates the church. 
I'm saying it creates a church or it creates churches. What, what, what is the gospel? Well, it's, it's the good news that Jesus Christ, son of God, fully God, fully man, lived a life that we should have lived, died the death that we should die. On the cross, he paid the penalty for sin and removed God's wrath for all who trust in him. And then he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, so that all who repent and believe can be forgiven and reconciled to God. And this gospel, this good news, I am saying, creates churches, okay? Um, i trying to think, should I give you, how can I? I know there's a way to show you things on my screen, like charts and graphs. I should have figured that out. I'll share screen. I wonder if I'm allowed to share screen. Maybe I'll work that out later. Okay, imagine a flow chart. You have the gospel on one side. Think, think of arrows in that flow chart going to create. And what do they create? They create a church, okay? You got a circle flow chart, a circular flow chart. You have the gospel creating a church or creating churches on, on, on the flow chart. Um, and, and notice that pastors and will often talk about how, hey, Christian, it's important to join a church because it's good for your faith. You're going to hear good preaching. You're going to be nurtured in fellowship. You'll be instructed by the example of others. Your faith will grow. And all of this is true. And these are good pragmatic reasons for joining a church. In fact, if you look at Calvin's Institutes and his section on the church, that's right where he begins. He, he, he begins with Christians to join churches, essentially, because it's good for them. That's fine so far as it goes. I want to make a more radical claim, which is you want to join a church because that's what you are, a member of Christ's body. And that membership in Christ's body needs to become manifest, visible, concrete, lived out. Let me, let me, let me explain letter B in, in two steps. So th these are sub points to letter B, okay? First, point one, under letter B, the gospel makes us a member of the church, Christ's body, okay? The gospel makes us a member of the church, Christ's body. So we, we don't just join churches because it's good for us. We, we join churches because of what we are. Th think, think of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are a pe God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, typically, when we as evangelicals talk about the gospel, we think of that second line, right? Not receive mercy, receive mercy. I'm a Christian. But interestingly, what do we learn about that salvation by what Peter parallels with it in the first line? Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Well, we learn that receiving God's mercy, becoming a Christian, happens simultaneously with becoming God's people. Salvation, in other words, doesn't just change our individual status in regard to God. It changes our status in regards to God's people. Conversion has a corporate con uh, dimension. So, brother pastors, when you are talking about teaching your church on the doctrine of conversion, and you're talking about things like, well, you know, God saves, 
nonetheless, we have a role, repentance and faith. We're describing it in kind of individual terms, and that's all true. But what I'm saying is when you brothers teach conversion, talk about the corporate dimension as well. Once not a people, now you are a people. Okay, and we see the same thing, you know this, we see the same thing in Ephesians 2. If, if you want to turn to Ephesians 2, there's two critical buts in this passage. What, what are, what is the first critical but in Ephesians 2? Anyone, just say it. What verse? The God's first. Verse, verse. Two, four, just two, four? Four. Four. Verse four. The, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places. Think about the, the spatial metaphor in those verses. There's a, a raising up, seated in the heavenly. we got a vertical set of spatial metaphors going on with that first but, right? This, this, this but God points to our vertical reconciliation with Christ, where he raises us up. Okay, that summarizes verses 1 to 10. Where is the second but? Anyone? Verse 13. Which reads? Uh, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, so if the first uh, was, a, was a vertical spatial reconciliation, what, what, what do we have here? horizontal yeah you're far off you've been brought near for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility right so we, we have this horizontal reconciliation between jew and gentile and by implication everyone who is united to christ and brothers when when does this question for you again when does this when and where does this horizontal reconciliation occur judge when did it first occur when and where does it first occur the same time isn't it as where the, do you see that say i'm sorry same time as what as the vertical where do you see that Verse 14. Okay. Yeah, no, notice it's all past tense. Have been brought near. Made us both one. Has broken down. Right? The vertical reconciliation is primary. But it necessarily brings with it simultaneously, derivatively, a horizontal reconciliation, right? Mom and dad adopt me from the orphanage. They bring me home. I look around the family room and what do I see? Lo and behold, brothers and sisters. To be adopted by them vertically brings with it necessarily, derivatively, secondarily, but necessarily a horizontal. I am now adopted brother, adopted sister right? In short, 
the gospel does not just create individual Christians, it creates a community, a family, a body. The gospel is church-shaped. And brothers, I want that to infect your teaching. I want that to be how you talk about discipleship and Christianity and share the gospel when you're when you're talking with non-Christians and non-Christians and people joining your church. You're emphasizing the corporate nature in light of texts like these. And sure enough, even the Bible, when you're talking about the doctrine of Scripture, you know, help your, help your church recognize, hey, have you ever noticed the Bible's a corporate book? It's not just you and Jesus in your quiet times. Have you ever noticed that the entire Old Testament's written to a people? Have you noticed that all of the epistles, save three, are written to, or four, are written to church churches? And, 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 and three of those non-church ones are to church leaders? You know, Philemon alone, maybe, just being one to an individual as such? The, the, the Bible is a corporate book. Our conversion is corporate. Our salvation is corporate. And um, I think we need to be talking about the gospel and conversion and evangelism in these kinds of terms. Uh, okay, so I, I said there's two subpoints under letter B. The gospel creates churches. Uh, first one is, is point, point one was that it, it unites us to the church, uh, I said, makes us a member of the church. Uh, point two, the gospel demands that we join a church. The gospel demands that we join a church, a concrete assembly of God's people. So with that first step, obviously I was talking about the universal church, the gathering of all Christians from every time and place that we will behold in the new heavens and earth. The gospel makes us a member of that, but the gospel also demands we join a church. Joining a church is how we, quote, put on, how we put into practice, how we, quote, make visible our membership in the church. We live on our membership in the universal through membership in a local. In fact, I dare say, if you don't live out your Christianity in and through a local church, it calls into question whether you truly belong to the universal. And that way, brothers, and this needs to be clear in your mind, the relationship between the universal and the local church is the same as the relationship between our positional righteousness in Christ through salvation and our, you might say, existential uh, righteousness, our progressive righteousness in Christ that Paul tells us to put on and pursue. It's no good to say that you're righteous before God through Christ as an act of faith if you're not pursuing a life of righteousness, Paul says in Romans 6, 1 to 3. You see? In the same way, don't tell me you belong to the family if you're never at the family meals. Don't tell me you're one of Christ's sheep if you're never in the flock. Don't tell me you're a brick in this temple if you if you're never stacked together with other bricks. In other words, the gospel doesn't create a vague universal brotherhood that gives me warm feelings rather it creates a concrete covenant together geographically located accountability providing list of actual names that we call a local church there's brother bob there's sister sue there's deacon darnell joining or covenanting with a local church is how we put on our membership in the new covenant body of Christ, just like we put on our covenantal righteousness by pursuing righteousness. I need to know your name. You need to know mine in order for us to keep each other accountable in the gospel. So the gospel doesn't just create the church. It creates churches. It comes into your life and mine and gives us a new identity. It makes new demands. In that regard, uh, again, uh, okay, I said it's like the relationship between 
positional and existential righteousness, you, you might say it's like the relationship between faith and deeds or faith and obedience. Our faith creates obedience. Okay? Our faith creates deeds, James says very clearly. And our deeds then give evidence for, prove, provide an apologetic for our faith. This is where I, I, I wish I had a whiteboard. I, I would, and I want you to write this in your notes if you have a pen. So let's go back to this flow chart. And I'm just going to descri <laughs> describe it for you, and you guys can draw it out. Our, our faith flow chart circle, top of the circle, creates deeds, right? And our deeds, now take the flow chart, make arrows back to our faith. It, it, our, our faith, I'm sorry, our deeds prove, give evidence for, manifest, provide an apologetic for our arrow to faith. Okay? So faith creates deeds. Deeds give evidence for, prove, manifest faith. So you have a circular flow chart there. In the same way, our positional righteousness creates existential progressive righteousness. Our existential progressive righteousness proves, gives evidence for, manifests, provides an apologetic for positional righteousness. You guys with me so far? Yes. yes. You, got, you got my wonderful imaginary flow chart? Okay. Now take that same flow church now insert on top of it Universal church, local church. Universal church, flow chart over the top, creates the local church. The local church, now go underneath, arrows underneath, proves, gives evidence for, manifests, provides an apologetic for the universal church. Do you see how these things work together? Okay. So God creates the first but then he creates in us, through our actions, the second, which prove, manifest, give evidence for the first in our circular flow chart. Letter C. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend the rest of this lecture just beating this horse, okay, until it's seriously dead. I'm going to say the same thing to you now over and over. I'm going to show you in the Bible what I'm talking about. Um just so it's drilled into all of our heads and, and we, we can continue to teach it. Letter C, here's letter C. The church protects, displays, and provides an apologetic for the gospel. The church protects, displays, and provides apologetic for the gospel. So the gospel creates a church. The church displays, protects, gives credibility to, provides an apologetic for the gospel. It is a, a virtuous cycle if there ever was one people can become christians apart from the church but apart from the church they'll have difficulty protecting the message in their own life they'll have difficulty pr pr uh, protecting that message and bringing that message to the lives of others right uh let's look at a few passages briefly turn to turn to galatians 1 and guys i'm just going to be really repetitive now uh galatians 1 We learn in verse 2 that Paul is writing the churches in Galatia. Then you'll notice in verse 6, he writes, I'm astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. We're going to talk more about this in future lessons for now. Just notice that Paul is telling every member of those churches to remove the false teachers who bring a different gospel. He's not just writing the elders or pastors, he's writing the churches. And what is Paul telling the churches they're responsible to do? Guys, what is he telling they're responsible to do? Someone, anyone? Protecting the gospel? I couldn't hear that. Say that one more time. Protecting the gospel? Yeah, protect the gospel. Protect the gospel. Build a house for it. Okay? I, I don't care if somebody shows up and flashes his apostle card. I don't care if somebody flies down from heaven with wings on his back, says, I'm an angel. Members of the Galatian churches, you protect that gospel. Right? Brothers, turn to First Thessalonians chapter one. First, to th turn to First Thessalonians chapter one. Let me read, starting at verse two. He says, "We give thanks to God always for you, to the to the church in Thessalonica, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father." your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Okay, so you see that they had received the word of the gospel, but those words came with power and the Spirit. How does Paul know that? Question for you. How does Paul know that? The, the gospel word had come to them with power, the Spirit. Because they had repented and turned to Christ. Right. They repented and turned turn to Christ, and he, he, he knows it by how they lived. So, so keep reading. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Notice they were an example to other believers. And then the gospel word and the gospel example work together to display the gospel around their region, even across national borders. Keep reading verse eight, for not only is the word of Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything for they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols and serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised us from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's the gospel, right? And the life of the Thessalonians together does what? It displays that gospel. It manifests that gospel, right? So the local church doesn't just protect, it displays the gospel. Um, look at... John 13. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Um, a new 
commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another um, obviously he could have said by your love for them though know you're my disciples and that would be true as well but Jesus doesn't say that w what does he say will act as a witness anyone love for the brothers love for one another that's right okay can somebody explain to me why their love for each other displays christ's love or acts as a witness can somebody explain that what's the connection because jesus loved us unconditionally when uh, we were uh, still sinners uh, so we have to love unconditionally our neighbor to to display the same divine love. Romans 5 eight, and this is love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So think for a second, what happens when a bunch of sinners covenant together as a church? Well, they offend one another. They sin against each other. They step on one another's toes. Yeah, look, you, you, you said you would show up for nursery at 10 o'clock for, for child care. You, you, you never showed up. Hey, I, I heard you said these things about me to, to, to my friend behind my back. Pastor, I'm, I'm really frustrated that you, you, you failed to pray about these things. I don't, I don't feel like you showed adequate mercy. Okay. We sin another against one another in all of those ways. Can we forgive? Can we be patient? Can we forbear with one another even as God has forbeared with us? Can we forgive even? Okay, it's, it's when we love each other like that, a forgiving, patient, forbearing love that we show the world what Jesus is like, okay? So again, the church displays the gospel. It protects it and it makes it shine. In, in that sense, you might say, and I'm borrowing from Mark Dever here, churches are like the, the gold prongs of an engagement ring. They, they, they hold the diamond and the gospel up in place, right? Hey, look, he, hey, here's the gospel. Here's this diamond, and, and it's the church which holds the gospel in place. Imagine for a second a man who gives an unattached diamond to his fiance, and then she just keeps that diamond in her pockets. Well, it might be a pretty diamond, but A, nobody can see it, and B, it's not going to last very long, right? Eventually that diamond's going to fall through a hole in her, her, her jean pockets or it's going to end up in the laundry. And, and so it is among those who are wise in their own eyes and try to live the gospel outside of a church. You see? So we protect it. We, we display it. Turn, turn finally to 1 Peter 2, brothers. Turn finally to 1 Peter 2. And we're, we're going to discover it not only protects and displays the gospel, we're going to see it provides an apologetic for the gospel. It makes an argument for it, makes it credible. So look at, in fact, look at the last few verses of chapter one. Uh, you see verse 23 reminds the, the readers they've been born again by the living and enduring word of God. And then verse 25 refers to, quote, the gospel or the good news that was preached to you. Okay. And then chapter two, look at verse five. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And then verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
Okay, so, so receiving the priest word made them stones in a spiritual house. It made them a new race, a priesthood, a nation. But, but, but why did God include them as, in this new people? I'll keep reading. Uh, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? So God means for them, not just individually, but as a people for his own possession to proclaim his excellencies. How will they do that? We'll look down at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil dealers, doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, our gospel changed lives will provoke non-Christians to oppose us. They won't like it when they, we say that Jesus is Lord before whom they shall bow. They won't like it when we say sexuality belongs between a man and a woman covenant together for life and marriage. And they'll speak ill of us. But our good deeds will frustrate them in their opposition. Because those good deeds will confuse them. Testify that maybe we're not as bad as they want to say we are. Why is it that Jonathan say Rachel and Sandra who are married to each other and live across the street. Why is it that Jonathan, this, this Christian is always the first one out here to shovel, not just his sidewalk when it snows, but he shovels our sidewalk. Why, why is it that his wife Shannon shows up at Christmas time with, with cookies for us and, and our other neighbors, none of the other neighbors are doing that. Why, why is it these stupid Lehman Christian, Christian Lehman's, are so kind and seem to go out of their way and caring for us, check in on how we're doing and ask us meaningful questions about our lives. I, I, they're intolerant, but they're nice. Right? So our good deeds and lives are providing an argument for, an apologetic for the good news that we proclaim. And so, brothers, finally, Ephesians 3.10, right? I, I trust you know that. What's, what's, what's the point of the church in the Bible? Well, Ephesians 3.10 gives it to you in a, in, a, in a single verse. Chapter 2, we saw we're reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. Gospel creates the church, we said. But now that church where Jew and Gentile are reconciled display the glory of God. Ephesians 3.10, through the church. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So there's one verse summing up God's plan for life in the universe and all of human history to display his wisdom and character and glory through the church. Okay. So the church is like a house for the gospel protecting. It's like a gold engagement band displaying the God diamond of the gospel. It's, it's a courtroom testimony making the gospel believable. And so then we think of all of those friends of ours, Christians that we've known over the years who try to live the Christian life apart from membership in the church. And you and I know they might be Christians, but at best they're ineffective Christians. They're, they're Christians on thin ice. They're generally not presenting an attractive witness in their workplaces or homes. Their, their lives are slightly cleaned up versions of non-Christian lives. 
And therefore, you and I both have witnessed over time again and again that their children tend not to follow them into Christianity, nor do their friends. The gospel's witness in their lives is unprotected. It's not durable. It lasts maybe one generation. So I think of my friend Jared. Jared calls himself a Christian. He can explain the gospel. In fact, at one point, he was thinking about joining our church. And so I walked through my church's statement of faith, and he affirmed every jot and tittle of my church's statement of faith nonetheless when we got to the end and we started talking of, of, of me thinking about him joining the church and a few classes i did with him one-on-one -on -one, and we talked about certain sin patterns in his life he realized he didn't really want to join the church because he didn't really want to be held accountable to those sin patterns and so uh, i said well you know listen brother jo joining this church means um being held accountable and he didn't want that and so i said okay well keep attending but you, I, i'd encourage you to join if, if not our church you really should join some other church it doesn't have to be this one but he never has joined and little by little i've watched jared adopt unorthodox views of scripture in order to support his sin patterns his sexual <laughs> lifestyle and if jared really is a christian and at this point i'm pretty much convinced he's not based if nothing else on his instagram feed and his, he's basically moved into a full-on homosexual lifestyle, as revealed on his Instagram feed. Uh, his his quote-unquote Christianity is is radically undermined, both the gospel's impact on his life and in the lives of others. And it, it was at that crucial moment of his deciding to join a church or not uh, that, in 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 a sense made all the difference not that joining it would have made him a christian but it had a huge exposing uh role in, in in showing him what he is or is not and me what he is and is not and finally i remember one day we we're sitting in a coffee shop and he said to me uh yeah jonathan i don't think I'm, I'm a christian or at least i'm not your kind of christian right the gospel he would not join the church the gospel was not protected in his life and he has not displayed the gospel. Oh, let me give you a positive illustration. I think of my friend Ryan, right? Ryan grew up in a non-Christian home, surrounded by Christian friends like him who like to drink and fool around with girls. And Ryan thought to himself, why, why should I become a Christian? They live just like me, but they're hypocrites about it. But then after college, Ryan's family entered a series of crises and a nearby church cared for his mother being divorced by his father, and then she became a Christian. Then it cared for him and his twin brother who followed their mother into salvation. What struck Ryan as he recounts the story is how well the church cared for his mother as well as how the church members cared for each other. And then eventually him. It was dramatically different than the churches he had witnessed as a youth. The life of the church served as an apologetic for the message it be proclaimed, and, and Ryan eventually became a Christian, okay? Um, I think I'll stop there. I'm looking over my notes. Is there anything else I want to say? I've, I've got a question. Did you also hear from uh, the movement, uh, the last Reformation? 
they called themselves the Last Reformation. They tried to be, well, uh, Christians on their own. And you see it also in the Netherlands. I come from the Netherlands, and you see it also in the Netherlands. It's, it's growing. People say, well, we don't need a church. Indeed, we, we are Christians, we believe, and we are going on the street to evangelize and all the kinds of uh, things, and they are very active. But on the other side, there's a great danger, of course, what you said is after one generation, yeah, it's all left. I'm not familiar with that movement, but it sounds like it's it has encountered and will encounter exactly the problems I'm describing. It, that's an unbiblical view. That's a that's a uh, they might have the gospel. Individuals in that movement might have the gospel, but they have a truncated, thin, not fully biblical gospel, because the gospel creates a people, and that gospel creation of a people must put on good deeds, which we do in our one another's, right? And we submit ourselves to one another. So mm-hmm. I, I would say they, they got probably some verses right, and they're missing a lot of other verses. Yeah. Other questions? Jonathan, you've given a really helpful um, and positive view of, of the church. Um, would you, could you say something about how you think we should view parachurch organizations? Um, and the, the, the strengths as well as the weaknesses of, of that. Yeah, great question. Thank you. Well, I'm pro-parachurch organizations, which is why I'm teaching you in a seminary, which is a parachurch organization, which is why I work for Nine Marks full-time, which is a parachurch organization. A parachurch organization pays me and makes sure that my children are fed and clothed. So... I am for parachurch organizations. Nonetheless, what's crucial about parachurch organizations is that they remain in the Greek para, alongside of the church, and do not try to supplant the church. Parachurch organizations become problematic when they try to do the work of the church as a substitute for the work of the church. So when evangelistic ministries on college campuses aren't working hard to be under the authority of a church and feeding college students back into the church and allowing college students to think, oh, yeah, this is kind of my church, that's a problem. Uh they're going to undermine the church and they're going to slowly undermine their gospel witness. When uh, seminaries or Christian colleges require students to go to chapel every day and do so in a way that they treat those chapel services as if they were church. Of course, they don't take baptism in the supper, but you know, this is where you get your vibrant Christian life. Then, then they're replacing the church in ways that are unhelpful insofar as christian schools often become kind of communities of christian fellowship that can be good and healthy and i mean like for for you know children five to pre-college um and people tend to downplay fellowship and discipleship through the church but it's, it's kind of around the christian school that's a problem So bottom line, yes, pro-parachurch ministry, but 
parachurch ministries need to work hard at tempering, restraining, constraining themselves to be only working in support of and alongside of the local church and its primary ministry. Does that help, brother? Is that? Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Could I, could I ask a question about um, perhaps a category of people that are between um, the, the sort of person who wants to say they're a Christian but won't commit to a local church? And who's speaking right now? So, sorry, it's, uh, it's Dan Jarvis. Um, Dan Jarvis, thank you. Yeah, so between, between the people who want to say they're Christians but they won't commit to a local church and fully-fledged church members, there's that category of people who are committed to a local church but won't become members potentially for doctrinal reasons um i don't know whether this is unique to the uk i know in the us people will kind of potentially travel a bit further to find a church that fits their beliefs yeah. but maybe in in a given town someone wants to go to a bible teaching church and so they have to go to the baptist church because the local presbyterian church is kind of watering down I mean, I'm, I'm stereotyping, but you, you know what I mean. Um, sure. Yeah. What would you say to kind of that person or that, that kind of that category? Sure. Hey, Daniel, my computer has this cool little button where I can I can click and I can see people can see me. Does your does your computer have that button? <laughs> it does. I'm, I'm having to move around my house because my okay. wife is packing boxes around me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very good. Um, um, and I, I may continue to chide all of you insofar as I can to, to, to be able to see you. So I, I don't want you to feel singled out there, Daniel. I'll, I'll single out everybody as, as I need to. Um, uh, okay, let, let, let me give you the easy cases. Let me give you the hard cases. E easy case is, is if there are other churches you can join in the area that keep your doctrine, you just, for some reason, you like, ah, I don't really think it's necessary for me to join a church. So there was, there was a brother named um, David who was attending our church for a while. <laughs> And uh, I went to lunch with him and I said, listen, uh, well, uh, you know, how you doing? What's your testimony? Got to know him a little bit. And I said, hey, have you thought about joining the church? He said, well, Jonathan, I thought about joining the church, but, uh, but um, you know, the way you guys put a couple of things in your statement of faith over the sovereignty of God, uh, I, I'm not sure I could fully get on board with it. And so I, we worked through it. I talked through it and I think I convinced him. Okay, great. Not convinced him of my doctrine, but that the, the, the statement of faith actually covered what he was worried about. Uh, then we went to another lunch and I was like, well, have you thought about joining the church? And he's like, well, no, I, I have this problem with the statement of faith. It matters dealing with baptism. Not that he disagreed with what we said on baptism, but he wasn't sure he wanted to require everybody to agree with us on baptism on that particular matter. Right. And uh, I was okay. Well, let's work through that. Third lunch, literally third lunch. Hey, David, have you thought about joining the church? Well, you know, I, I have this quibble with the statement of faith. He said, and I'm like, okay, so what was the last church you were a part of? He said, well, before I, I, was, I, I attended this church, but I didn't join. Well, why didn't you join? Well, I had this problem with their statement of faith. Okay, what about before that? Well, I attended this other church, but I didn't join because I had this problem with their statement of faith. Okay, I'm, I'm seeing the pattern and the common thing between these three churches is not the churches, but you. <laughs> you know, It's like, you've always got a quibble, don't you? And so in that third lunch, I actually said to him, you know what, David, I would encourage you to stop taking the Lord's Supper. 
I'm not a, I'm not a church. I can't excommunicate you. This is not an authoritative binding of the keys word. This is just one Christian to another. This is, this is a pastor encouraging you as a, as a matter of counsel to, to stop taking the Lord's supper. You're, you're kind of the captain of your own ship. You're a, you're a, you're a free agent. How do you know that you're not living in self-deception? And interestingly, David, because he's theologically sharp, uh, said, actually, Jonathan, I, I don't take the supper. I've not taken it in years. And I said, A, that's tragic. B, that's, I think, the right thing to do. Um, so that, that, that Daniel, I'm ca calling the easy case. It's hard to do emotionally. I get that. But kind of conceptually, that, that's, that's easy. It's like, if you're not going to join, if you're not going to submit yourself to the oversight of, of a congregation and its elders, yeah, that's just a very, very, now David may be a Christian. In fact, I, I assume he probably is. I just think he's poorly taught and I think he's proud in this particular area. And, and we don't want to participate in affirming that. Okay, the harder cases are, are like the ones you described. So my friend, John Fulmer, when he went to plan a church in Dubai, or I'm sorry, revitalize a church in Dubai, at that point, it really was the only evangelical church in Dubai. These days, there's more of them. There's 10, 11 of them, but this was early 2000s. It was the only one, as, so far as I understand there. And so the elders had to discuss questions of, you know, do we allow Pado baptists to join? John's a Baptist. And, um, um, and there's no other Presbyterian church for these Pado baptists to join. Um, now, John had the conviction of, yes, let them join. I personally have the conviction of, no, don't let them join. Um, they can be there. They can be involved in various ways. But I think what, I, what I'm going to do in the long term is I'm going to encourage them, actually, in some ways, help them to plan a Presbyterian church. Because I think the Bible, A, teaches baptism of believers, and B, I don't think I have the authority to say you don't have to be baptized. Jesus said you have to be baptized. I don't have the authority to tell you you don't have to be the baptized. Um, and and um, therefore, I would rather kind of encourage you and help you start your Presbyterian church, where you can all be unfaithful together, <laughs> um, in the gospel, uh, then then participate in what I think is unfaithfulness. Now, my British brethren, I recognize that that is nearly unheard of on your lovely island for, <laughs> for Baptist churches to take that stand. I, I know of a couple churches in England who, who take that stand and at some cost to themselves. Um, nonetheless, uh, I, 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 think, I think that is the right way. But good godly brothers in Christ disagree with me on that one. Daniel, have I, have I helped? Yeah, very much so. Thank you. Anybody else? we got five minutes before break. No, do we five? How, no, we're done, aren't we? We're at 55. Let's take a five-minute break. And uh, I'll see you in a few. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Ten minute break. Oh, it's a ten minute break. Great. See you in ten minutes. <laughs>
Yeah, yeah, that's why I'm starting to see. 
I'm sorry, are you, are you talking about someone who's baptized an infant? Or are you talking about who's not baptized at all? Oh, right, okay, yeah, well, no, that's, yeah, I'm with you, so, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> you need to be on top of I've realised this is a problem. Yeah, 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 yeah,
Do you think we'll be allowed to sing again? Well, they're all stretching out for two weeks, I think. It's almost uh, that's going to be extended. We're so strongly I think you'll find a little bit of a new Screen. I think I figured it out. Are you are you host? No, but I think I can. So let me let me let me test. Let me test. So share. Like that, you guys can all see that now, right? Yes. Yeah. Hey, cool. Okay. All right. Um, seventeen. All right. I, I've actually shared with you in the chat outlines for this next talk. Uh, th this, this is like, how do we read our Bibles institutionally? That's the question we're going to try to answer now. 
how do we read our Bibles institutionally? And you see an A through G in the, in the chat section. So you can just, if you're on a computer and you want to just cut and paste that in. But let me, let me start with some introductory thoughts on this. Um, turn, you, turn your Bibles, brothers, to Acts 14.23, okay? Uh, Paul and Barnabas have returned to the churches they planted on their first missionary journey, and they're, they're working to encourage those churches and establish pastoral leadership. And then this is what they say in verse, we read this in, in verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Okay, here's a question, not rhetorical, to be answered, a question for you. Does the fact that Paul fasts before appointing elders mean that we must also fast when appointing elders or pastors? Let's assume we should pray. That just seems obvious, but I'm talking about fasting. Does the fact that Paul does it, and it's in the Bible, mean that we too must fast? Well, there's no appointing elders. There's no commandment on fasting before appointing an elder. So you could do, but there's no commandment to do this. Okay, so so it's describing it, but it's not prescribing it, right? Yeah. Is it, yes. Is so if he had prescribed it, you would say we must do it. Mm-hmm. So am, am I am I to take it that you who, who was it who was just talking? It was me. I was going to say we should see if there is a pardon repeated through scriptures according to a particular context and circumstance. Okay. And then uh, me, it's Daniel, sorry. Uh, Daniel, thank you. Yes, and so if there is a pardon, then we can start to develop uh, a doctrine that is not just descriptive, but is prescriptive for us. Uh, okay. It's repeated both in the Old and New Covenant, and what the particularly covenantal circumstances of uh, the particular event. So, so one of you in the classroom said it's not commanded. Daniel said also a pattern of command. So, so for instance like the command to greet one another with a holy kiss, which is repeated no less than four times. Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, and Paul and Peter, 1 Peter 5, 14. So six times you guys are commanded to greet one another with a holy kiss. I, I take it you all do that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> don't come here. <laughs> no, you don't. None of you do. Not the pandemic. <laughs> uh, okay, so I mean, it's 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 tough, isn't it? Because just the fact that there's a command itself, you know, are you do your women, do your wives wear head coverings? Uh, and even the fact that there's a pattern of it. Again, six times we're told to greet one another with a holy kiss. None of these things seem to be decisive, um, which is to say both of your instincts are right. You, you, you are to notice, okay, there's a description versus a prescription. That seems to mean something. Is it once? Is it multiple times? Okay. Uh, but but what, what you have, or let, me, let, let, let me just 
do any of you say we absolutely must fast when appointing elders? Does anybody say, yeah, I, I think that? I don't see a single hand. So all of you have kind of an intuitive sense when reading the Bible, Acts 14, 23, yes, the apostle does it. No, I don't think I'm wiser than the apostle. Nonetheless, I don't think something is being required of all of our churches here. You have certain hermeneutical instincts at play in all of this. And what I want to try to do in this lecture is, is uncover and give a little bit of science to the art of of our hermeneutics why, why we would we would um say no nah, i know paul does it but i don't know that i have to and another example of course is is our anglican and presbyterian friends are going are to point to the jerusalem council in acts 15 as an example either of a general assembly or a presbytery making decisions that bind multiple churches and from this they're going to argue that we too should have churches subject to general assemblies and presbyteries and are they right well you know we, we don't think so you know, or, or what do we do with the occasional nature of the epistles? That, that is, how do we take into account the fact that they're written for particular audiences at particular occasions? Do Paul's directives to the Corinthians about church discipline apply to us? Um, how, do, how do we think all of these things through? Um, and, and, and how much more does this apply to questions of government, right? Does, does what's required of Israel apply to us? Okay, well, what about Pilate, uh, Caesar? Uh, how, how, do we, how do we decide what's instructive for us and what is not instructive or binding, rather, on us? And to answer that, as I said, we need to know how to read our Bibles institutionally. What's a, what's a normative, what's a binding norm for, for churches and Christians from the pages of scripture? Let's start by defining institution. Letter A, what is an institution? Letter A, what is an institution? What do I, what do I mean by institutionally? Well, an institution, if you want a definition, an institution is simply a rule structure, okay? An institution is a rule structure that shapes our relationships. A family is one kind of institution. It's a set of rules that say husbands and wives are bound to each other in a certain kind of way, as well as the church, the children, okay? A tribe is an institution. A nation is an institution. The handshake is a very informal, but it is an institution. When I'm coming to you and I'm greeting you for the first time, there's a certain set of rules that we, we operate within socially that I, I reach out my hand, you reach out your hand, and we, you know, we shake them, but not too hard. Right? Don't try to break the guy's knuckles. You just, but th th there's a set of informal, a social protocol rules for what it is to do a handshake. Right. So our lives are governed by various rule structures. Um, if it, if we we're in France, we wouldn't do the handshake. You know, when you see a friend, maybe you do the kiss. You know, two cheeks or three cheeks or whatever it is. I, I can't keep it straight. Um, <clears throat> Congress is an institution. Parliament is an institution. Uh, a church is an institution, um, schools, universities are institutions, insurance is an institution. All of these are rule structures that shape our relationships. You cannot live apart from, even in this anti-institutional age, we all live in and through institutions, okay? And as you move through the Bible, what you discover is that God uses different institutional structures at different times for organizing and binding his people. So he uses one set of structures in the garden, another set with Abraham's family, another set with the nation of Israel, and so forth. 
And the question for us is, how does the New Testament bind or structure our relationships with each other and with the world? What's expected of us with the world? The, 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 the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a institutional structure that bound Adam and Eve. When they were removed from the garden, that, that institution passed. Um, and there's a sense in which you can chart where you are in redemptive his history by what institutions are binding on God's people or not, or binding on the nations or not. Okay? And, and a group of Christians as a local church is an institutional structure. Church is not just a people. It's a organized, covenanted, gathered people. It's a people inside of an institutional church, a structure, inside of a polity. No polity, no institutional structure, no local church. All right? The difference between my relationship with you guys and my relationship with my fellow church members is that I abide with them, though, though you and I are, let's, let's assume, united in the new covenant of Christ and maybe have some obligation to, to pray for one another and to love one another and so forth, maybe in certain circumstances care for one another financially, we are not under the same common uh, 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 church covenant, which means you guys cannot discipline me. I cannot discipline you. We are, we are not instructed to keep one another accountable. We are not under the same institutional structure, okay? That's what an institution is. Let me give you five rules for an institutional hermeneutic. Five rules for an institutional hermeneutic. Let's start with B, letter B, begin with authorial intent. Begin with authorial intent. That's lesson number one. You need to ask the question, it's pretty straightforward, does the author intend to establish an institution or structure that binds us? So when you guys, let's go back to Acts 14.23, you know, Ask yourself, does anything in the text indicate that the author, Luke, intends to establish a rule that every church must fast before appointing elders? Well, it's not clear that he does. And none of you said it at the time, but I think all of you are kind of operating with an implicit sense of, ah, it doesn't seem to be what Luke is getting at here, right? And so I'm, I'm trying to draw your instincts at that moment to the surface, I think your instincts all said to you that this, this, this does not meet the criteria of authorial intent. Or think of Acts 15. I think it's pretty clear in that chapter, Luke and the apostles mean to bind all churches, meaning us, with their decision, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. That is, they intend to bind us with the outcome of their deliberations. In fact, they explicitly state, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to share their conclusions not to require circumstances, circumcision for Gentiles with all the churches, verse 28. But is there anything in Acts 15 to suggest that the process by which they made the decision should be replicated? Right? I mean, can, can we guarantee that possessing a knowledge of the Holy Spirit's will, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and us, is going to occur every time we get together as a church or as a church council or a general assembly. And I'd say the answer is no. I'd say this was a moment, unique moment of divine revelation like Pentecost, right? And there's nothing in the text that suggests, text to suggest that the author intends to establish presbyteries or general assemblies or episcopacies for making decisions that bind multiple churches. I mean, you, you have basically one church there. You have the church in Jerusalem and you have 
emissaries from the church in Antioch come down to say, hey, look, you guys are creating problems for us. But it's not a full church, multiple church council. Here's one further example, brothers. I mean, have you ever asked yourself, our Roman Catholic friends make an argument for having a pope? Well, they point to Matthew 16. Obviously, you know that, where, where Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom. They point to Jesus restoring Peter in John 21. They point to Peter's preeminence in Jerusalem in places like Acts 2, right, his preaching, Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 11, Acts 15 there in the Jerusalem Council. Uh, They particularly point to the fact that in Acts 5, Peter treats Ananias' lie to him as a, quote, lie to the Holy. You've not lied to man, says Peter, but you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Lying to Peter is lying to the Holy Spirit, say the Catholics. And finally, our Roman Catholic friends point to the fact that Judas, as an apostle, was replaced by Matthias. Okay, why is that significant? Well, they say if, if Judas was replaced, surely Peter was eventually replaced too, right? Peter must have had a chair, which successors fell, just as Judas did. And not only that, say our Roman Catholic friends, since early church history suggests that Peter went to Rome. Well, not only do we need a bishop of Rome whose chair is replaced, and since Peter seemed to be preeminent in all of those places, and Jesus seemed to give the keys to Peter, well, then the bishop of Rome must be preeminent over all the church. You see the argument? You see how that all works out? What are they missing? Well, among other things, they're missing any conception of authorial intent. Are there any clues in Matthew 16 or John 21 or Acts 5 to suggest that Jesus meant to establish a permanent chair for Peter and his successors who are the head of the church? Is that what Luke meant to teach through Judas's replacement? Right? Simply by... Accounting for authorial intent, the Roman Catholic argument for Peter as the spiritual ancestor of the Pope suddenly looks awfully flimsy. In fact, it looks like an imposition on the text. So how do we avoid doing that ourselves, misusing text to justify our power preferences? How can we not do that ourselves? Well, how, do, how, how we can't read the author's mind, right? Jonathan, what do you mean with the author intent? I can't get inside of his head. Well, that's right. You can't. All you can do is look at the words themselves. So as we're thinking about, for instance, church structure, let's look at the words themselves. So Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Well, the language tells us he's stating something universally true. Under these circumstances, my name and authority will be present. He seems to be establishing something once for all. Or when Jesus says, <clears throat> commands the disciples to go into all nations, making disciples by baptizing and teachings, the fact that it's at the conclusion of Matthew, the fact that the commission is given to the disciples, the fact that he promises his presence always, I will be with you always, tells us he seems to be establishing something permanent. When Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, an elder must be The fact that he is speaking not about a specific set of elders, but categorically and broadly tells us these qualifications are relevant for all churches. So, brothers, when we we constrain ourselves with this first rule of biblical hermeneutics, authorial intent, I think you'll find that the New Testament doesn't establish a lot of permanent structures, but it does establish some, okay? Any questions about what I've said so far?
it seems to me to be quite difficult to <clears throat> distinct our principle, uh, uh, which principle are applying uh, universally today in our contemporary churches and uh, which are specific to that uh, uh, historic, uh, specific historical moment uh -huh. in the uh, history of redemption. So yeah, uh, it, it is difficult, absolutely. But that's why I'm trying to give you a little bit of science to the art. You got science and art in hermeneutics. Okay. I'm trying to give you a little bit of the science. Step one is that what the author's intending to do? Uh, let me push on to step two, uh, letter C in your outline. Ask who is authorized to do what? Ask who is authorized to do what? And this, this is perhaps the most crucial one for distinguishing an institutional hermeneutic. And if you can hear my dog whining because he wants to get out of my office, see if he stops. If not, you'll see me getting up and opening the door. Ask who is authorized to do what? Can you guys hear that? Yeah. He's <laughs> a Presbyterian dog. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Ow. Keeping it real with you guys. Real life at the Lehman House. <coughs> Y'all can hear me, right? Yes, sir. Yes. Okay. okay. Ask who is authorized to do what? That's our second rule. Are governments authorized by God to tell you who or what to worship? Are churches authorized by God to wield the sword to prosecute blasphemers? Well, we need to ask whether the Bible authorizes governments and churches to do such things, okay? Um, I think many church leaders begin with the basic assumption that we're free to do what we want unless the Bible explicitly says otherwise. We assume we're broadly free to govern our churches and be involved in, in, in politics and government and so forth and organize as churches as best suits the needs of the moment and best suits our particular tradition. Um, and I think we make these assumptions when we are asking questions like, oh, what's the balance of powers between elders and members? Or when does a congregation get to vote if it doesn't at all? Um, what should our membership practices look like? Should we even practice church membership? Uh, should, should, should pastors endorse political candidates or not? Can, can I, I received this question the other day from a, from a pastor in an email. Can, can my elder run for Congress right. um, <clears throat> and still be an elder? <clears throat> 
Well, an institution, so, so again, the assumption here is that we're free to do whatever we want unless the Bible says no. So the Bible puts up a fence and says, no, well, yeah, well, we can't go there. But otherwise, we're free to do whatever. Well, an institutional hermeneutic that I'm recommending begins with a very different assumption. It doesn't assume we're free to do whatever we want until someone says no, just the opposite. It assumes we're not free to do anything until God says yes. All right. It begins with the recognition that we are vessels made out of clay and that the God, the creator, must give us the authority to do whatever we do. So, for instance, do human beings have the authority to take a spouse and produce children? Brothers, yes or no? Yes. Sure. <laughs> yes. We know we received that authorization in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply, right? Do human beings, yes or no, have the authority to build houses and write music and throw parties? Yes. I, I see Manuel saying yes, uh, a little bit more. I would say yes. I would say that also is part of the dominion mandate, right? <clears throat> Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Okay, another question. Do human, yes or no, do human beings have authority to eat fruits and vegetables at that party? Yes. 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 Where do you receive the authority to do that? No at a covenant. Uh, before that. What? Ooh. Fruits and vegetables, I said. Oh, <laughs> the garden. Garden, yeah, sorry. Wait, sorry, where? In the garden. Genesis 129. Behold, I give you every plant oh, yielding sorry. seed that is on its face of the earth, and every seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Okay, now but now going to your point, Ken, do 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 it at it, this little party that we're throwing in our backyard. Do we have the authority to eat steak and hamburgers? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Where do we get that authority? No, I had a covenant. Yes. Genesis 9, the first few verses. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green pants, I give you everything. In other words, your brothers, obviously, humanity has been authorized to do quite a lot. Okay. But human beings, vessels made out of clay, have absolutely no freedom, no entitlement to do anything, not even pick an apple off a tree and eat it, unless God so authorizes. Okay. So I'm trying to switch the paradigm the way you're thinking about these kinds of things. Listen to Martin Luther. <clears throat> for when any man does that for which he does not have the previous authority or sanction of the word of God, such conduct is not acceptable to God and may be considered as either vain or useless. Jeremiah puts it even more severely. Jeremiah says in chapter 5, verses 30, 31, a horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests by, rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. Okay, so the, the, the continual question which drives an institutional hermeneutic, again, is who has authority to do what? Um, what authority do we have for gathering churches, governing churches, living as churches? Do churches have the authority to wield a sword on property, use musical instruments? Let me give you an illustration just to kind of draw this point out a little bit further. Um, my wife and I attended a, a, a jazz club in downtown Washington, D.C., where we watched the jazz artist Gregory Porter. It was good, good, good evening. And the jazz club had dinner tables. Right. So we, we sat around dinner tables, servers came and served us and we listened to awesome jazz while eating dinner. It was a great time. Let's suppose my wife and I came home 
and uh, and um, um, here here to our suburb of Bowie, and we're like, you know, that was such a good time. Well, why don't why don't we start a little jazz club in our house? Okay, we'll we'll expand the living room, we'll build it out, and we'll we'll invite the neighbors and we'll hire artists and and so we go down to the local mayor's or the local town city hall for Bowie, our 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 suburb, and 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 receive an entertainment license so that we can host artists and charge people for them let's suppose we hire artists and people come and uh they pay to hear the jazz artists that we play it's a good time everybody loves it this is great then people start saying hey you kind of hungry you got anything to eat and then shannon and i think to ourselves you know when we were at that when we were at the uh, howard howard club there with gregory porter they served us dinner Let, let's do that and so we expand our kitchen some and we hire a wait staff and we start cooking dinner and we we, we you know we serve dinner as people come and listen to jazz well, at that point, the county inspection agent shows up with a little clipboard and his, you know, glasses and thin, skinny tie. And uh, he, he says, uh, I see you have an entertainment license, but, but you have a food establishment license. And we say, well, well, no, but, you know, people were hungry and we were just giving them bags of chips and that wasn't very good. So we hired this and it's just, it's really great. We love it. Everybody's having a great time. And he said, you know, that's fine and all, but, you know, we're charged with, with protecting certain food standards in restaurants in our, in our county and, and, and city. And so we want to make sure you have a food establishment license. And if you don't, we're going to have to fine you. All right, so we had one license, but we didn't have another license. We were authorized to do one thing. We weren't authorized to do another thing. And so what I'm trying to teach you guys to do, and I want to help Christians to do, is to think who is authorized to do what as we go through our Bible and not simply assume I can do whatever I want unless God says no. Okay. Uh, that brings us to letter D. Well, how do we how do we do this? Uh, we'll determine how to fulfill an authorization by distinguishing elements and forms and then using wisdom. We have to determine how to fulfill an authorization by distinguishing the elements and forms and then use wisdom. Uh, <clears throat> so how, how do we figure out what we're authorized to do and how do we, how do, we do it? Well, I, I think we need to make a, a distinction here between elements and forms. And those of you who are familiar with regulative principle conversations will We'll, we'll know this distinction between elements and forms. Elements, you might say, are like the furniture, while firms are more like the style of the furniture. Elements are biblical and therefore apply to all churches, while forms involve wisdom-based judgments about how to apply certain forms and certain circumstances. So the Bible authorizes us to do certain things. Those are your elements, but it doesn't always tell us how to fulfill those authorizations. Those are the forms. Okay, uh, so you might say you, you have a, the Bible gives us a what and a who, but it doesn't always give us a how. Let me give you several examples. Think of the biblical authorization for marriage. Genesis 2 says a man leaves his father and mother, bonds with his wife. Okay, there's a what, marriage. And it gives us a who, one man, one woman. And it doesn't give us a how. I mean, do they court? Do the parents decide? Is there a ceremony? What happens in the ceremony? Well, the Bible doesn't say, right? I believe the Bible leaves that to the category of wisdom. 
So we have an element. So the, you got to have this furniture in the room. If you want to have a kitchen, you got to have a fridge, you got to have a stove, you got to have a table. But, it, but is that an electric stove, a, a gas stove, a wood burning stove? Well, it doesn't say. You, just, you have to figure that out according to your context, the how, you see. Okay, think of the biblical authorization for governmental power. Genesis 9, which we'll talk about a lot more in a, tomorrow, establishes that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Okay, there's a who, humans. And there's a what, taking responsibility for reckoning crimes against other humans. But okay, how do governments fulfill this authorization? And how do we determine who the government is? I mean, is it by democratic election? Is it by military conquest? Is it by royal inheritance? Is it by certain family patriarchal structures? Well, the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't specify. It leaves that open to wisdom. And, and what we're going to find as we look through scriptures is a multitude of different forms of government which which god's people inhabit and 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 it's it kind of over to wisdom best practices to figure out what we should do here okay so you have an authorization but you don't necessarily have a, a how to fulfill that authorization you see uh, when we turn to the new testament and the church sure enough we, we get the same sorts of things we get the what and the who we don't necessarily get a how at all times so matthew 16 and 18 i'm going to argue authorize the entire congregation to exercise the keys of the kingdom for binding and loosing okay but how do congregations do that how do they make decisions do they do it by vote do they do it by consensus i think to some extent that's a matter of wisdom Matthew 18 establishes that churches should make disciples by baptizing and teaching everything Jesus commanded. Well, how do churches do that? How do they evangelize, disciple, teach? Well, the Bible doesn't always say we need wisdom, okay? Acts 20 says, Holy Spirit has established elders, elders as overseers. Well, how do you nominate and confirm the elders and pastors? We need wisdom to do that. The Bible commands churches to sing to one another. But how it sings, I think, is going to depend on wisdom. Your microphones, instruments, this style, that style. Well, I think the answer depends on whether those things facilitate a church's ability to fulfill a biblical command. Um, so, you know, if, if we were to fill this out even further, we could we could um, share a screen with you. You know, we could, we could go through all the different places in the church's life and and um, see a, di a distinction between what, who, and how. Um, just as we're thinking about the church's life together. So, for instance... Okay, you see my two columns there, right? Um, your elements, I think, have to be biblically mandated. We hold them with a firm grip. I think they're context independent. I don't care if you're Britain or America or, or Bangladesh or sub-Saharan Africa or whatever. You must preach. You must teach. You must have good doctrine. You must have church members. You must have the Bible, not the Quran. You must practice the ordinances. There must be all of the, these are musts, Okay. That's what I mean when I say a firm grip. These are biblically mandated elements. Now, your more contextualized forms require wisdom. So if elements are your what and who, your forms are your, your how. 
And this, we have a looser grip on this, and this is context dependent. Well, okay, if we we have to have preaching, what what about the style and length of sermons? We have to have teaching. Are you Sunday school, small groups? What do you do? Your doctrine? Do you do you use a formal statement of faith, a church covenant? Well, you know, it it it, it sort of depends. Um, membership? Do you do you have membership classes, interviews? Well, okay, it, it sort of depends. Which translation of the Bible, and and so forth? What's what's the script in in doing the ordinances? Okay. So, you know, these, these same kinds, you could, you could take the same elements and forms and apply them to any institution that God has established. We could, we could apply this to families and how fam parents must discipline their children. They must instruct their children. Well, exactly how do parents do that? Well, to some extent, that's going to depend on the context. Governments must seek justice. Okay, we'll talk about more tomorrow. How do they do that? Well, that, it's, that's going to be context dependent in different times and places. And so this old regulative principle, distinguishing elements and forms, which you guys may be familiar with, with regard to churches, in a certain respect, uh, I think helps us understand distinctions we need with every institution that God has established. And so we read our Bibles to get the basic elements of these uh, uh, governing institutions he's given us. And yet we need context by context dependent wisdom to figure out which form <clears throat> it takes in that particular location. Okay. Um, letter C. Do you do you do you have do you have C require only what's biblical? feel like i missed that do you have that in your notes that i in what i shared with you let's see chat i don't see the chat are you guys seeing the chat do you see the outline coming up on my screen is letter c require only what's biblical in your outline no it's no, ask what is who is authorized. Ask who is authorized to do what. Oh dear. But then oh, the oh, one oh, that. Oh, 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 shoot. Sorry, I'm I'm in the wrong. Ask who's authorized to do what, and then D. Yes, determine how to fulfill. Sorry, I have multiple documents going here. Okay, we're at letter E now. I think heed canonical horizons and covenantal administrations. Heed canonical horizons and covenantal administrations. That is a mouthful. But <laughs> I don't think it's actually as complicated as it might sound. First, pay attention to canonical horizons, right? Just like you'll look at the horizon in the morning or evening to know what time of day it is. So you need to look at the landscape of scripture to know what time it is. Where in the storyline, where in the canon are you? Are you in the garden? Are you in the time of the patriarchs? Are you in the time of the land of, of the exile? The time of Christ, early church? Okay. Trying to figure out who is authorized to do what means looking forward and backwards in the, in the storyline and figure, okay, where are we? And even more specifically, it means you need to pay attention to covenantal administrations. Which covenants are operative for where you are in the storyline? Okay, are we under the Mosaic Covenant at this moment? Under the New Covenant? Davidic Covenant? What? Noahic Covenant? Now, reading the Bible institutionally means we need to read covenantally. I think covenants are crucial. They are the, the interpretive grid through which we interpret scripture. They are the the, the, the Bible, the, the skeleton of the building that holds the whole things together, right? Um, 
so uh, you know for instance question would you guys say that the uh, uh, first commandment is binding on us? You shall have no other gods before me. Is that binding on us? Yes or no? Yes. 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 Okay. Uh, second commandment, not to make idols. Is that binding on us? Not in Italy, but yes. <laughs> not, not in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> In Rome, we have some problems. <laughs> was that was that a little shot at the Roman Catholics? Okay, uh, third commandment: keep the Sabbath. Oh wait, I, no, I got that back. For, uh, third commandment. Sorry, don't take take the Lord's name in vain. Yes, you'll all say. Fourth commandment: remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Is that binding on us? Yes. Yes, on Sunday. You guys all take Saturday off, Friday evenings, sundown to Saturday evening, sun, you know, sundown. Y'all, y'all keep the Sabbath then. Yes, in the light of Colossians two. Yes, in light of Colossians. Oh, you got to throw in that little caveat there, though. Yeah, don't yeah. You? that's why I said. Yeah. I mean, I think we all understand. Okay, you get to the Sabbath, it becomes clear. We, we oh, wait a second. We don't do that with the first, second, third commandment, but for some reason we do it with the fourth commandment. We then again we don't really do it with the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth. What, what, why do we treat the fourth commandment specially? Well, we understand that Jesus came as the Lord of the Sabbath, and we understand that He came to fulfill all the law, and so we know we have to go through a kind of hermeneutical grid. In light of Colossians two, as a, a brother said. Um, in fact, here's what I would say. I would say none of the Ten Commandments are directly binding on you as such. I would say you need to do with all Ten Commandments what you do with the Fourth Commandment. I would say all Ten Commandments are given not to you. Well, what does the first few verses say? I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Brothers, none of you were brought out of the land of Egypt, and none of you are their physical descendants. The Ten Commandments are part of the Sinai Covenant. They were given through Moses to the people of Israel. Nonetheless, we understand that all Ten Commandments are indirectly binding on us through the person and work, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, right? And so sure enough, nine out of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. And so we understand that they are, in some sense, binding on us. Okay, what am I doing? I'm simply trying to pay attention to the canonical horizon the covenantal administration to recognize to ask the question okay in what sense is is this directly binding on me indirectly binding me on me through christ i got to do that kind of hermeneutical work right but i'm asking the question who is authorized to do what and this is going to take us into all kinds of questions about theonomy and and what churches can you know require of ourselves what we what we encourage the state to require um, we have to, and even if you do not want to put covenants together precisely like I do, you know, even if you don't want to say about the Ten Commandments precisely what I just said, I think the general point here you all accept and receive, which is heed canonical horizons and covenantal administrations. Okay, letter F <clears throat> be sensitive to different kinds of authority. You know, who has the authority in the church, the elders of the congregation? Your answer is yes. your answer is both. Yes, right. 
Hebrews 13 tells the church members to submit to their leaders, yet Matthew 18 seems to give final authority to the congregation. How can both of these things be true? Well, here's what's important to recognize. There's more than one kind of authority in a church, just as there's more than one kind of authority in most organizations. A company has a president, a board, shareholders, right? A nation has voters and a legislature and a executive branch and so forth um any concept of final authority among human beings is finally relative since about it's always as i said to you in this morning it's always contingent on the final judgment god alone is the final and absolute authority by virtue of the fact that he alone is the creator and there are different kinds of authorities in the church different kinds of authority in government even different kinds of authority in the home a parental authority a husband's authority and uh, we need to pay careful attention to these different lanes, different kinds of authority in the church, elder one kind, congregation, another kind. And reading the Bible institutionally means having our eyes peeled for these kinds of distinctions. And I want you guys to pay close attention, right, in your reading of the Bible. Finally, letter G, uh, is this final? Yeah, letter G, recognize that some rules and authorizations are heavier than others definitely getting into the art here not just the science but I, I i don't think it's enough to ask whether some practice is biblical or not or commanded or not and that was the trouble that we had in the very first opening illustrations of acts 14 23 you guys said well is it commanded is it repeated commanded oh what about the holy commit kiss well okay uh, you you know that the Bible has more than just up or down, thumbs up, thumbs down. It has, it has a broader range of ethical guidance. It gives prohibitions, it gives permissions, it gives commands, it gives counsel, it gives precedents, it gives examples, right? And each of these carries a different level of shouldness or oughtness. So you might decide, okay, well, it's not commanded to fast, but there seems to be some wisdom in it. I'd encourage you to fast when appointing. Okay, that's fine. You can do that. There's different weightinesses, different levels here. Uh, there's a difference between you must and you would be wise to do this and you might do this and you may do this and you're permitted to do this. Okay. Our church members are not careful and they have a hard time thinking in those categories. And you as church leaders especially need to learn how to operate in multiple lanes, especially when it comes to things like, okay, so can a, can a, <clears throat> can a Christian watch rated R movies? Are you going to bind the conscience there? Well, maybe not, but you might talk in the category of wisdom. Can a, can a, a, a Christian vote for a, a pro-choice candidate if given a choice between a pro-choice candidate and a pro-life candidate. I understand in your elections, you often don't have that choice, but find some issue in which, you know, you have a clear binary. Can a Christian vote for a pro-choice versus a pro-life candidate? Do I want to bind your conscience there? Do I want to say, well, wisdom would suggest, okay? We as pastors especially need to know how to operate in multiple ethical lanes and uh, so that we're careful not to bind what scripture does not bind at the same time, know how to use questions of wisdom. So for instance, <clears throat> does the Bible anywhere command a plurality of elders? Well, it doesn't, right? 
but do we have repeated examples of a plurality of elders? Well, yes, every, every time the word elder is used in a historic sense, not just like an elder must be, but just he's talking to the elders in, in Ephesus or whatever, it's in the plural, right? Uniformly, it's in the plural. What does that say to us? Well, that says if you go into a church and you're the only pastor and you don't have any other elders, are you immediately in a state of sin? Like you would be if you hadn't been baptized? Well, well no. If, if you're not baptized, you are in sin. That's not the same as a plurality where if I don't have the plurality of elders, I'm, I'm, I'm not in sin. Nonetheless, the fact that I have a uniform example of plurality of elders tells me there is a shouldness to it, right? It tells me I need to aspire as an I can. I would need to move towards it. There is some weight, ethical normative weight on a plurality of elders, but not the same level of weight we have, say, on baptism. It gives me a discipleship trajectory on plurality of elders, but I actually have a command on baptism. You guys with me? Am I making sense? Yeah. So you 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 need multiple lanes. Um, the Presbyterian Church of USA Book of Church Order um, lays four tiers of moral weight. I, I think this is helpful. I'm not saying we need to Im imitate this precisely. I'm just saying it 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 demonstrates illustrates something for us. Um, in fact, I'll show you on your screen because I'm savvy with Zoom. Uh, shall and is to be, are to be, signify a practice that is mandated. Should signifies practices that are strongly recommended. Is appropriate signifies practices that are committed as suitable. May signifies practices that are permissible but are not required okay so in our exegesis brothers we ask several questions first what kind of text are we dealing with is it a command is it a promise a warning a historical example some commands seem to apply universally pray for those in high places while others seem to apply only contextually a woman must not wear braided hair or fine jewelry Presumably, each of these possess different normative weights, right? Different kinds of oughts. And in conclusion, let me just say again, I, I think good hermeneutics is part art, part science. There's certain principles we should bring to bear, such as looking for authorial intent, ask who is authorized to do what. That's the science. But we still have to make interpretive judgments as an art. And Christians are going to disagree over some of those judgments. That's okay. Don't be threatened by that. Instead, learn the principles and, the may, and then make the best judgments you can. The goal is to be faithful to Scripture, to God, and to his people. Okay? Any questions? We have yeah. till, we have five more minutes. Is that correct? Yeah. Any, any, any questions? I'll try to answer for this exegetical study, you are referring to a particular book that is helpful, or it's uh, all uh, your uh, personal elaboration? Well, the, 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 those four tiers I, I took from the PCA, not the PCA, I'm sorry, the, the uh, Presbyterian Church USA. It's actually the liberal denomination. I took it from their church and book order. I lay out everything I just said to you guys in my book, Don't Fire Your Church Members. Um, 
which is my theology of congregationalism. Uh, and I, I, I quote that little bit, but yeah. Other questions? I've been talking about how to read the Bible. Tomorrow morning when we gather again, we'll actually work through scripture and try to read institutionally. But other questions about how? Come on, we got four minutes. Got so four you, minutes. Let's use them. When you were talking, Jonathan, about the um, different authorities within the church of church members and church elders, how would you describe the differences between those authorities and what's the sort of interplay between them? Yeah, great. We'll, we'll dive deep on that uh, probably tomorrow afternoon, maybe, or maybe, maybe, maybe Thursday morning. But the short answer is the uh, congregation has the authority of the keys. The elders have the authority of teaching and oversight. Uh, the uh, congregation has an authority of command, which is a unilateral and effectual authority, whereas the elders have an authority of counsel which means they can bind the conscience, but they can't finally effectuate what they command. They cannot excommunicate you. The, the congregation can excommunicate you, as in, in my understanding of those, those, of those offices. Um, the congregation has an authority over the what and the who of the gospel. That's where it exercises the keys. What's a right confession? Who's a true confessor? The elders have an authority um, in leading the congregation to use their authority well over the what and the who of the gospel and equipping them to use their authority well over the what and the who of the gospel. So th there's a quick table comparing the two. Again, we'll dive deep on that later. Do, do you think it's quite, um, th th those categories, sorry, of no longer uh, walking around the house. Yeah. Um, so the, the categories of shall and should is appropriate to and, and may. Would you say it's quite difficult sometimes to define where certain kind of principles in scripture fall into those categories? Uh, I, I guess problems can arise where people in the church can place things higher on the list in the shall category or the must category that probably only should be in there is appropriate to yeah, do, yeah. do you see what i'm getting at oh yeah 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 i mean is it a, is it a challenge oh my gosh yes right it, it it takes tremendous wisdom to know in any given moment whether this this is falling into a must falling into a should is falling into a, you're free to though i'm not sure i advise it right um, and, and you're going to face these things pastorally all the time. You know, I don't think it's advisable you you divorce your husband, but in light of what he's done, I, th I think you're probably free to, but I'd encourage you not to, or, or no, you, you, you do not have grounds. You must not divorce him. I'm sorry. Those aren't grounds for divorce or, or, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a Christian, yeah, you'll, you'll support, um, um, as a Christian, you, you will support reparations for, for things stolen. 
Does that mean you must support reparations for American slavery? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that falls into Christian freedom, right? Okay, well, what about what about a seminary that's uh, uh, clearly excluded blacks? Should that seminary, I was in a conversation just recently with a friend. He said, okay, Jonathan, you have a seminary that up until a few years ago was excluding blacks. Would you say that that seminary must do something? to recompense for its policy up to just a couple of decades ago. Must they do something? And I was like, should they do something? Yes, I can say, I think they should. Must they do something? Maybe, ah, it just depends on what. And yes, Christians are gonna disagree. Is this a must? Is this a should? Is this an advisable? Is this a free to, you're permitted? We're going to disagree. Nonetheless, I'm trying to train our minds as church leaders to, to know how to operate and to make sure, man, we got Bible behind us when we when we push into this must category. You know, the Westminster Confession, I mean, Christians have always been doing this, church leaders, Westminster Confession, it talks about pastors really only being able to bind the conscience when it matters explicit in scripture or clear by good and necessary consequence. That was good, faithful Presbyterian thinking right there. Is it clear in scripture or... Uh, is explicit in scripture or clear by good and necessary consequence? Or is it just one level out from that of implication out? Okay, we need to know how to operate in different speeds. Good, good, good question, Daniel. Anything else? I suppose. Um, Last question. That, that must and that must and maybe. That must and should is always difficult, isn't it? Because you started off today, you really said at the beginning, is that we need to exegete our worldview. But sadly, we do come to these decisions and often our class, our culture and our background do shape those decisions still. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's certainly true. We're, we're, we're determined, we read the Bible, I said at the very beginning, our culture determines how we read the Bible instead of vice versa. And, and so there needs to be a hermeneutical spiral. You've, you've probably heard that phrase back and forth between my, my Bible informs my views, and my views are going to inform the Bibles, but I'm constantly trying to recycle them, wash them out with Scripture, so that my, my view of culture is, is increasingly a biblical one. So, but, that, but that takes time, right? Okay, brothers, uh, tomorrow we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start in Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis 1. We're going to start with God's own authority, and the authority he gives to Adam and Eve, and then the authority as it's given to Noah. And we'll see the institution of government. And then, we're, we're, and then when we move from the common covenant given to Noah to the special covenants given through Abraham, Moses, David, and eventually Christ and Christ's people. And we'll get a doctrine of a church out of that. And, and that's how we will proceed. Let me close us in prayer. Uh, Father God, we thank you for your mercy and kindness to us in Christ. We thank you that you are clear in scripture with everything that we need for life and godliness, including how to be fathers and husbands, how to, how to be fellow neighbors and citizens, how to be fellow church members and elders of those churches. Father, you, you tell us what we can and should do, and you tell us and leave us free in those places where you would have us use wisdom. And we, we pray for such wisdom. We need such wisdom in living our own lives and our families and in leading our churches. Uh, give us this understanding this evening uh, as we continue to reflect on lessons from today. Give us understanding tomorrow as we return to think about your word. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers, I will see you at 10 a.m., Lord willing. God bless. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.